he's now lost the children he was more invested in, and he's sort of just stuck with Lorna. And sort of just stuck with Lorna is kind of Lorna's whole publication history. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Eisner Award-winning comic critic Corinne McCreary, assistant editor at Women Writing About Comics and a contributor elsewhere, including ComicsXF and other great websites. This week, she wrote an article for Shelf Dust about Polaris, the mistress of magnetism, Lorna Dane, which is the character we are here to talk about today. Corey, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, just a relaxing Saturday and uh, excited to talk about my favorite X-Men. Well, that is the goal of this podcast, always. I have one quick correction about last week's episode regarding Sage, a.k.a. Tessa. I noticed this during the edit and I was like, I'm so fucking stupid. I was like... Well, she should be Iranian because the Hindu Kush borders Iran, which it does not. It is on the other side of Afghanistan. However, I think my point stands, which is that Iran and Afghanistan are next to each other. And I think it would be cool if that character was Iranian. But my bigger point that I was trying to make was I think they should make her explicitly Middle Eastern from anywhere in that region because it would be a cool thing to do that makes sense with her history as it was presented to us. So that all being said, thank you for all of your comments on that episode. I know Sage is like a weird, obscure character, but I think she has so much potential and I'm excited to see what happens with her going forward. We are here today to similarly talk about a character who's not obscure, but who I think has never quite met the potential that she could. And I'm excited to see where she goes in Leah Williams and David Baldeon's current run of X Factor, because I think it's clear they have a lot of affection for the character. Lorna Dane is one of my favorite X-Men, but has had a rough go of it since the 60s when she was introduced. So, Corey, I'd love to hear about your backstory with the X-Men, your origin story, as it were, and then get into why you love Polaris and wanted to talk about her today. So, my backstory with the X-Men is complicated, um, as things with the X-Men tend to be. (laughs) Um, I came into comics at the tail end of 1992 with the death of Superman, and I stayed pretty much with the Superman books for, like, the next two years. The first Marvel books that I remember reading were the Wolverine issue right before Age of Apocalypse, where he gives Sabretooth a lobotomy. Yeah. And then parts of Age of Apocalypse propers. My first introduction to the X-Men was basically Age of Apocalypse X-Men. That's so funny, because that's about where I check out for a while. (laughs) Like, it's a wild place to start. I followed the Age of Apocalypse titles for most of it, um, what I could. Like, it was 1990s, I was picking things up off of newsstands, not going to a comic shop, so, like, I think I got, like, Factor X number one and number three, and just random issues throughout the run, never completing any of them. I read a couple of issues of the X-Men books when they came back, and then 
really checked out of the X-Men and most of the Marvel Universe proper for several years again. Um, it wasn't until Joss Whedon's Astonishing that I came back to the X-Men briefly, because at the time I really loved Joss Whedon. I've soured on him a bit now, as you tend to do. At the time, I liked Astonishing X-Men a lot. Dropped off again after Joss finished his run. Came back briefly for Wolverine and the X-Men by Jason Aaron. Again, didn't stick around because nothing was really grasping me. Mm -hmm. And then House of X and Powers of Ten hit. And I was like, I'll give X-Men a try again. And then you really gave X-Men a try. Yeah, uh, those were incredible. And I, I loved every minute of it. And then I loved everything that was starting to come out in Dawn of X. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I need to know these characters a little better than I do. So in December of 2019, I started a reading project where I decided I was going to read all of the X-Men comics ever published. Which, to be clear, for newer readers slash listeners, is thousands of issues. Yeah, uh, over six thousand issues of x-men and x-men related comics um i did everything from the main titles to the miniseries to one-off specials and even the solo series so like i read all of wolverine's solo series right. i read you read that rob liefeld comic about storm and cable's son from an alternate future so you really uh, you did the work yeah and like my goal was to finish it by the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the the final goal that I had set for myself was, I'm going to read it all basically in a little over a year. I finished on October 31st. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, we did all kind of shut down for a year and have nothing else yeah. to do. I started a podcast. I mean, we all did things <laughs> that we weren't necessarily expecting we would accomplish. Yeah, quarantining really did help with the project, because I needed to maintain an average of something like 19 issues a day. God. And so, like, I read everything, and a lot of it stands out in my head, but there's also a lot that just kind of... In one ear, out the other, yeah. Yeah, like, I read it, if you remind me of it, I can probably remember it. I'd like you to explain the goth and the neo for our listeners right now. I'm kidding. Please don't do either <laughs> of those things. I think the Neo is coming back, though. I have to, like, go reread that, because I feel like they're going to finally do something with that, because it was in Hawksbox. <laughs> but the interesting thing about my reading project is, like, I went in with a clear list of favorite X-Men. Like, Kitty Pride had always been my favorite. That's why I love Joss Whedon. That's why I tried Wolverine and the X-Men. Kitty Pride was the character that I really loved out of the X-Men, and then a handful of other characters. I love Cyclops because I'm a stickler for the lawful good. You're a Superman fan. Yeah, I'm a Superman and Supergirl fan. And they fan. try to do that with Cyclops. The thing about Cyclops is that he's not that guy. So it's... Right, no, and... It's tricky for him. Yeah, it, he gets better when you move him away from that. Yes. I, I like that. His weakest characterization, I think, is in the 90s when they really make him the Superman, and I don't think it works. Yeah, exactly. And... So I came in going, all right, Kenny Pride's still probably going to be my favorite X-Men at the end, but let's see what other characters I really click with. And 
somewhere around the time of War of Kings, I was like, I don't think Kitty is my favorite anymore. I, I think I really, really like Lorna, despite not having a whole lot to dig in with her. Especially, I mean, it's just funny, the idea that War of Kings, of all things, would make you have this revelation. I mean, it is, she, it is a starring role for her. I just, all of that Starjammers era stuff was just not to my taste. <laughs> and then when Leah Williams and David Baldeon's X Factor started, I finally had a Lorna story where it feels like they're actually doing something good for her. <laughs> and like I read that first issue and I immediately emailed David to ask if he was going to be selling pages from it mm -hmm. and now above my head is the page where we first see Lorna in that run with her hungover hair of the dog look at the Green Lagoon Yeah, that's permanently on my wall now because I was like, that That was the moment where it was clear that I wasn't coming back from deciding that she was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I really like the way she's been written in that book so far. My literal only complaint is that her hair should be huger. I like when Polaris has huge, huge hair. But I understand that, you know, she's trying to be taken a little seriously. She's not going to go for the full perm at the moment. But I would like a return of the late 80s into 90s curls that were bigger than anything we'd ever seen before. <laughs> yeah, that Strowman hair. Yeah, it's real good to me. I like how as the 90s went on and she got more powerful, eventually it just turned into green smoke because I guess that was fine. And then we just never, ever touched on that again. <laughs> As you sort of identify, the problem with Polaris is that she's been a supporting character for her entire career. And when she has been allowed to lead, historically speaking, it has been under the pen of one writer, which is Peter A. David. And I like some of the Peter David Lorna stories quite a bit, but... I would say that overall, much like Sage last week, Polaris has suffered from being seen by other writers as sort of the property or the pet character of this one writer on some level. And by the fact that most of her development, bar a few interesting side paths by writers like Chuck Austin or Ed Brubaker, most of her character growth since about 1990 has been in Peter David's stories. And he obviously has a very specific idea of the character that is not always the same as mine. I've always really liked Polaris because, I mean, one of the off-the-cuff utterances of this podcast that has become sort of a catchphrase now is from the Iceman episode with Anthony Oliveira, where I said, dating Polaris is gay. <laughs> because I think it is. I think that Polaris has a very specific appeal to gay men. It's a certain je ne sais quoi. Like, I don't know exactly how to put it, but she's larger than life. That big Stroman hair in the 90s certainly helped. The bright green hair with the green lip, the purple witchy costumes she has sometimes, which I always think are her best looks. My favorite Polaris costume to this day is the costume she was given by Dominic Shikari when he first called her Polaris. The weird Shi'ar costume with the big 
witchy cowl headpiece. I love that one. I actually think that the Chuck Austin costume that sort of drew on that, that was designed by Kiasa Mia, is one of her best. She's just got that diva, bad bitch thing going on that I think a lot of gay men and trans women, in my experience, relate to. I mean, as Rashida Renee said on the Storm episode, Polaris is pussy, like Lorna Dane is pussy. She has that, she has that vibe. <laughs> so that sort of was my inroad, but my inroad to the X-Men generally was more the 80s stories because I was reading my father's collection. And in those, she's mostly Malice, yep. which is another witchy purple look. And as the story has gone on, it's been more firmly established that like Malice was fully in control. None of that really was Lorna, you know. Mm-hmm. At the time, at least Malice claimed that all she was doing was bringing out Lorna's inner rage and that they were sort of, they had become one being. And I found that very interesting. I thought her interplay with Mr. Sinister in that period was interesting. And I was very into Alex as a character in that period because I'm a big Maddie Pryor head. <laughs> and also Psylocke was my favorite X-Man and her interplay with Havoc, who's terrified of her, but also kind of horny for her, is a whole thing. So that whole time, Alex is upset about Lorna. So it's like, okay, that may be invested in that. It may be invested in Malice, maybe invested in everything that was going on there. And when I went back and read the 60s stuff, I thought she was really one of the cooler elements of a period that otherwise I find pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, and what was coming out at the time was the first Peter David X-Factor and then the Howard Mackie X-Factor. She was cool in that. I mean, I was not reading it regularly. Uh, I think I started reading more regularly during the Howard Mackie period with like Shard and Mystique and Sabretooth and Forge. And Wild Child. And Wild Child. It's a weird period of that book. But it was fun, and she was sort of the leader there, because Alex drops off for a while to go undercover with the Brotherhood, yada, 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 yada. So I was always very into their relationship, but then whenever it's on the page, it's so dysfunctional. (laughs) Yeah. It has that kind of energy where you're like, please stop this. Yeah. But you also want them to sort it out, you know what I mean? But you're like, no. Right, they're that rom-com couple that you know is not going to make it at the end of the movie, but they have fun while they're together. The thing is, I wouldn't be surprised if they were together at the end of the movie. That's the thing about them. But I just feel like they both have so much work to do before it would be at all healthy. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated in the most recent issue of X Factor is that It opens with Lorna admitting to drunk dialing Alex the night before. And Rachel's like, oh my god, Lorna. Like, we've talked about this. (laughs) And, like, I'm really hoping that Hellions touches on that at some point. I hope so, too, because I love the idea of Alex on Hellions at, like, his most unhinged that he's been in a while. Except what I love about what Zeb Wells is doing with Alex, Alex has had a real... He's had a rough go of it. Murderer's row of character assassination stories over the last... 10 years, 15 years. And what Zeb Wells is doing is being like, yeah, Alex's brain got 
real messed with a whole bunch of times that he's crazy at the moment. So we're going to put him on this team with all of the craziest people and he can start to realize who he is and be less crazy. I'm excited. I have a Havoc episode coming up next month that I'm excited about because I do love that character, but even more so than Lorna, I think... Like, with Lorna, it's a problem of she's rarely used, period. And with Alex, it's a problem of he's rarely used well. Yeah, yeah. He's used often, but it's usually to his detriment as a character. <laughs> so. Yes, yeah. The 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 horrible, horrible M-word speech where... Yeah, I mean, iconically bad. I've talked about <laughs> it at length on this podcast because I hate it that much. Iconically bad, and it... It, it reads as him trying to do what Lorna does and then just failing miserably at it because she is great at giving that kind of speech. She famously gives a speech much like it in the 90s run of X Factor, but yep. it's not offensive. <laughs> right. It, it, it is. It does it right. And Alex is like, I can do that. And no, no, honey, you can't. Definitely can't. <laughs> not not working for us we're not feeling it so what was it about lorna in your big read of every x-men story that there's ever been that made you feel drawn to her like you said a lot of it is just her energy and her personality the things that draw me to her are just how bombastic she is at her very Mm -hmm. best she is immensely powerful she is the prodigy of an amazing mutant pedigree and like i don't like to refer to her in terms that define her by the men in her life like i don't like to refer to her as havoc's girlfriend or magneto's daughter but it's also important to note that she is magneto's daughter and with that does come a certain air of nobility yeah she's important to the mutant culture as a figure. Yeah. One of the stories that really underlined to me how much I loved that character was actually, and it's funny, again, it's like, it's sort of the, the absences with her always, right? Because it's less about the story she gets to tell and more about what she signifies, which is a problem a lot of female characters have, but I think for her, it's the real crisis of her 50 years of publication. The story that truly gets me is the issue of New X-Men that Phil Jimenez draws where she's the lone survivor in the ruins of Genosha. I mean, that is an incredible issue. But Lorna's having a psychotic break in that issue. So it's not an issue where you get to understand where she's coming from necessarily. But it's so beautiful, first of all. I mean, I don't know. There are people who don't like that she's naked. Or I think it's breathtakingly gorgeous. And I also like that it reestablishes her very specifically because the character had been so aimless by the end of the 90s. And what it does is it says, this woman is, particularly because Morrison's project over the course of the next one would be to sort of undercut Magneto in a lot of ways. If Magneto's philosophy has a place, if Genosha was a valid project, then it's embodied in her, which is where the character then goes over the course of the next however many years, Austin leans into it real hard. Obviously, the wedding storyline is sexist, let's say. But on the other hand, I actually really love Lorna in the Austin run, which I think is 
one of the funniest things about it to me is I'm like, he goes out of his way to assassinate this character, but she's so much fun. And it feels like the first time she's really asserting herself. Yeah. Since that issue with Doc Samson back in the early 90s. Yeah. And you know? like that, that's where I come down on Austin as a whole for the most part is. Yeah, it's terrible. It is really, really bad comics. Yeah, god-awful. But But you can find moments of fun in it. (laughs) And she's the best part, I really do think. I I come back to it, like, Austin is terrible, but Austin was also not a very long period compared to some others. No. And I can find... Yeah, I'm much more down on Lorna in the periods that followed. Yes. The Milligan and Brubaker and And then all of the that. later Peter David years. Yeah. <laughs> My biggest comparison is Chuck Austin to Peter David, where Chuck Austin was on the books for a short time, did terrible shit during them, but you could find moments of fun, like Havoc threatening to piss a new body for Iceman. Or Quite honestly, like Lorna threatening Nurse Annie with scalp. Yes. Hilarious. Lorna transforming her wedding gown into a Magneto suit and trying to kill everyone after she's dumped at the altar. Hilarious. Yeah. Lorna telling everyone at her bachelorette party that she's not marrying Alex because he's good in bed, but because he's reliable. And then saying that she never fucked Bobby because you don't have sex with Bobby, you endure him. <laughs> hilarious lorna just straight up killing people occasionally and everyone else just being like lorna we don't do that we're x-men and her being like oh right sorry i forgot i went to genosha and witnessed a genocide so i don't care what happens to these bigots hilarious (laughs) like she's great in that run it's weird because it's almost despite austin's intentions because in that arc the initial one he pulls it back when he explains why she's so crazy at the moment and that's where the she is his daughter, for sure, for realsies moment happens. By the end of the run into where Austin leaves and Milligan immediately puts Nurse Annie on a bus, <laughs> she and Nurse Annie have actually reached an understanding between each other, like, as women. like, And so it's an interesting arc because it definitely starts with, like, one of the most sexist storylines ever in X-Men comic, but... She's the character you like, though, the whole time. Like, as opposed to the character he's trying to make you enjoy, which is Husk, who I just find unbearably tedious the Uh, entire time. Husk is another of my favorite X-Men, and yeah. Oh, my condolences, because she's she's had an even rougher (laughs) run than than Lorna has. Yeah. Yeah. You came back for Wolverine and the X-Men, and Husk was a favorite? That's rough. Yeah, yeah. That's a rough one for her. Let, let me rephrase that. Like, Husk wasn't a favorite until I started, or in still, until I got to Generation X in my year-long read. In your big read. Fair. No, fair enough, because that's her only Yeah, her only good, good moments. Book, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. I actually, though, I have a suspicion that she's going to be on this new team of X-Men in the Reign of X. Oh, on the, on X-Men proper. Yeah, the one that, that Scott and Gene are putting together, because she's not doing anything else, and it's conspicuous. Yep. She was on the X-Men team in House of X to take on Mother yep. Mold. Hickman loves Jet X. Hickman is a fan of the character. I feel like that's where she's going, and that's what would make sense. I am not 
a Husk fan, so I don't particularly care, but I love that for Husk people. <laughs> and listen, if Monet is apparently getting her own book, then by all means, Husk can go be on the X-Men. I don't begrudge yes. her that. But yeah, that is the that is the thing about the Austin era. The highs are very high, which is why it's fun to talk about, because the lows are simultaneously <laughs> some of the worst X-Men uh, comics of all time. Uh... You're having a great time reading it, but also it's fucking god-awful. So that's fun, whereas there are a lot of X-Men runs where I... I just think this is dull. And that's the worst thing an X-Men comic can be to me. Is it, it's dull and it's offensive and it's long, which is what I can say about Peter David as a whole. Like, he is on the books for a ridiculously long time and nothing ever happens. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of some of the early, early Peter David stuff. I love the issue where Mystique scatters Destiny's ashes. I love... That issue where X-Factor goes to therapy. I love a lot of that early X-Factor stuff. Although, man, does Wolfsbane just drive off a cliff immediately (laughs) and never recover ever again. Like, talk about a character who has just been destroyed. (sighs) It seems like in Dawn of X, they're just pretending nothing ever happened to her after 1989. And I feel like that's... The best way to do it with her, yeah. Yeah, because that character has been a disaster for about 30 years now. But I fall off with Peter David pretty quickly in X-Factor Investigations. I understand why the book was popular. It was different. It has an appealing cast. And what you're saying about not a lot happening, I do think that the very soapy feel of it appealed to people who missed that vibe with the X-Men, which had become a lot more plot-driven. Yeah. So I get it. And I will say it's that book that made me care about Monet. Because I was not a Gen X person. (laughs) Much like New X-Men was what made Emma one of my favorites. The very early X-Factor stuff was what made Monet rise in my estimation. Monet didn't become one of my favorites, though, until much more recently. Because she, her stock has just... Skyrocketed. Risen exponentially (laughs) every year in the last five or six years. I can't wait for X-Corp. I'm so fucking excited for X-Corp. I could scream. You and Allison both. I know, I know. Allison Malicious Glee on Twitter is a great follow if you're not. <laughs> and may eventually turn up on this podcast. So get to know her in advance. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm dying because much like Allison, I love Warren. So the Monet and Warren of it all, I'm very, very excited about. I stopped reading Peter David's X Factor at a very specific point that I think a lot of people stopped reading Peter David's X Factor, which is the baby thing. Oof. I'm probably not going to get to a siren episode for a while. So if you're not someone who's read the book, uh, what happens is... So Peter David really loves Jamie Madrox, the multiple man. I like that character also, in part because as a young gay boy, the idea of multiple man's power was very uh, scintillating (laughs) on some level. That said, in X-Factor Investigations, in which he is the protagonist of that long run... He fucks all the girls on the team, and it's, like, a little bit absurd. And there's this... But it's funny at first, because there's this one plot that's really pretty funny, where Monet and Siren both get with Madrox. Now, of course, this is the moment at which Peter David just abruptly aged Monet up, like, seven years, and we all just don't talk about it, but she's clearly, Peter like, Peter David abruptly aging characters up so that they can have sex with Madrox? <laughs> Never! <laughs> Never happened. I 
I, I'm glad for it with Monet because I like her as a character who's more contemporary to the New Mutants. And the sliding time scale has now made it all kind of fine. But at the time, it was very abrupt because she had been 16, like, right. a year prior in Jet X. But anyway, so Monet and Siren both have a one-night stand with Madrox. Siren and Madrox have a long history together, dating back to the 80s. So that's a little more complicated. But anyway, the point is, they're not sure which of them slept with the actual Madrox and which of them slept with a dupe, which is very funny. It becomes a lot less funny when Siren becomes pregnant and then eventually gives birth. And then Jamie touches the baby and absorbs the baby because the baby's a dupe. I hate that so much. I... God. And Peter David was, I was so, so angry about people spoiling that plot point. But it was... Isn't that why Scans Daily got yeah. shut down? Yep. Because he was mad that someone spoiled the baby yep. plot. I, like, I, I hated it so much. Not to, like, Madeline con myself, but, like, flames, flames on the side of my face, heaving, heaving breaths. Yeah, no, I hated it. I'm not even a Siren person. I didn't give a shit about Siren as a character. Love an Irish moment. So I wasn't, like, I've never been opposed to Siren, but I was not an X-Force reader in the 90s. So I didn't have much attachment to the character. But it was so cruel and felt so weirdly misogynistically hateful. And so hacky. I just couldn't deal with it. So I stopped reading that book right there. (laughs) You made the right decision. I would dip back in occasionally over time and be like, what's going on with those kids? And uh, usually something involving hell. So I I was very confused by the end. I tried to pick it up again when Lorna came back. I've since gone back and, you know, read this stuff. But just as it was coming out, it was not, it was just not my cup. And Peter David is someone who, I think that he is an immensely talented writer. I also think that he is someone who can become very self-indulgent when he is left to his own devices for a long time. In that way that Chris Claremont can. I will disagree on the good writer part, but I am heavily biased against him. He is probably my least favorite writer of all time. (laughs) Wow. Well, I try not to get super too hardcore negative on this podcast, but with him, what's really difficult for me, honestly, is he went on that very strange public rant once about Romani people that was incredibly racist, and I just have trouble pulling back from yeah, that one. Yeah. It's a, that was that was not good. I, I actually have been surprised that there weren't more fallout consequences yeah. for that. Yeah, because it was it was pretty egregious. So not to belabor that <laughs> point, and you know, uh, it's just this is the thing about longtime writers, right? Like we, this conversation, we, you and I had a similar conversation recently about John Byrne. Yeah. Because I have a real soft spot for X-Men The Hidden Years, apart from the storm arc, which is awful. But the rest of it is really fun because I'm a Candy Southern head, and it's definitely Candy's best material outside of The Defenders, which nobody read. Was that part of your read, The Defenders? It wasn't. You didn't miss a time. It's going to be part of one of my other... The Cloud stuff is very interesting. The, the stuff that they do with Cloud and Bobby and Cloud's gender presentation and like all of that weirdness is, is cool. But if nothing else, it'll make you love Candy Southern like I love Candy <laughs> Like I've got a couple more. I've got Marvel reading projects planned for the next several years. Mm-hmm. Defenders will probably fall under the, the street level heroes project. <laughs> Although they weren't really back then. 
like Defenders has become a street level hero name because of the Netflix shows. It, it replaced Marvel Knights yeah. sort of as the terminology. But back in the day, the Defenders was like Moon Dragon and Valkyrie and like you know, way back in the day, it was Doctor Strange. Like it's yeah, a weird I just team. don't know where else to slot it in my overarching project. Yeah, it's a weird one. It's a weird <laughs> one. Champions and Defenders are very very weird. I go into that in the Iceman and Beast and Angel episodes because it was sort of a what do we do with these characters yeah. kind of thing. But anyway, so yeah, mixed emotions on Peter David, as we were saying. My thing with him is that because he is the writer who's been most interested in Lorna historically, a lot of the big developments for the character do happen under his pen. One thing that I do really like about her return to X Factor was him explicitly giving her bipolar disorder as a diagnosis on the page because I think it makes a lot of sense with the way she's been written over the years and it's a very unusual thing to do in a comic book so I thought that was very cool it's of course a little neat with her code name and her powers (laughs) but it was similar to how he had characterized her very interestingly in the early 90s which is part of why I was drawn to the character then as bulimic he's always been interested in her psychology what makes her different because she always has been different from gene and storm who were the other two early female recruits she's always been the one who resists the call to heroism more strongly who's a little more wacky than they are and he tried to find sort of mental illness reasons why she has been this difficult character to square I think that both the eating disorder and the bipolar disorder are very interesting and intelligent twists on the character. My issue is that then the way he writes them to me, it doesn't have the the care that I think is necessary. He introduces an actual mental illness for her. And that's great. I love that. But then he makes a joke out of it. Right. And he makes a joke out of it repeatedly and meanly and just he is abundantly cruel about her mental health for the rest of his time with the character. And that's what makes me so angry about it. Like, yes, it's good it's to have very this odd. representation of a hero with... With a psychotic disorder. I mean, like, the, it's important. Yeah. It's, it's something that is Moon Knight is schizophrenic and that's about it. I can't really think of anyone else dealing with something like that, who's a major heroic character. Superman's dealt with some mental issues in the past. um, Well, they've all, people have had stuff on and off, but in terms of like, here is your psychotic disorder diagnosis on the page. This is your struggle as a hero is dealing with this thing. I think it's fascinating. Yes. And in the right hands, it is fantastic, but you need to have empathy and care about it so that you're not so that it doesn't look like you're punching down with it right and that's one of the things that i think makes the new leah williams run on the book so much more interesting we got an issue during x of swords that was told mostly through lorna's internal monologues best lorna issue in a very long time very 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 best lorna issue ever in my opinion, those internal monologues are just so fantastic. They really drive home the feelings of that disorder and of 
what Lorna is going through on a daily basis in having to reconcile everyone else's expectations of her with her own expectations of herself. I think that going forward, Lorna is going to be treated a lot better. Certainly, it's clear that Leah Williams cares about the character, which I think is, I actually think that the turning point, and it's interesting because it was an alternate universe, but to me, it felt like the turning point for the character on this level was Vita Ayala's Prisoner X mm. in the Age of X-Men moment, which I, I don't know, those AU moments where it's like, everything's an AU now suddenly, they never are my favorite. I like AOA. Age of X-Men had some stories in it that I thought were cute. I thought Prisoner X was the best one. And in part, that was because it felt like the character of Lorna was being taken seriously, which was fun because I feel like so often she is a joke. Yeah. Or she is a background character or it's like, there's Lorna. Like, she sure is crazy. You know, I really liked that it felt nuanced in that way similarly to what leah was doing in extremis with betsy and her body image stuff bringing that sort of onto the page and so when leah started writing polaris i was like oh this will be good because she's someone who is very invested in the psychology of these women she is someone who is thoughtful about how she handles disability i mean there was a lot of conversation about the resurrection protocols and how people get brought back and things like that. And she's clearly thinking a lot about the real world ramifications of the stuff she puts out there in the book. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited that when I saw the solicits, I was like, Oh God, the Morrigan, are we doing this (laughs) at first? Because when I had tried to dip back in X factor investigations, that's truly when I dipped back out was like the Morrigan storyline. Cause I was just like, again, a wise decision. What is going on? And for those of you who aren't familiar with this story, and it's good that you hear about it now because it's about to really factor into X factor. (laughs) I mean, it's already is, but clearly it's the current plot. Siren, at one point in Peter David's X-Factor, replaces the Irish death goddess, the Morrigan, and takes her godhead because the Morrigan wants to retire, is my recollection. Something something. like that. The point is, they make a deal. And Siren agrees to take on that responsibility if the Morrigan will fix Lorna's mental health. Which is very weird. Yeah. And is a weird thing to do when you've gone to the trouble of giving her a real diagnosis that's real world relevant, right? Because if you're an actual person with bipolar disorder, the fix, if there is one, is like therapy, antipsychotic medication, self-accountability, like maybe journaling. It's not a death goddess fixing your brain because she made a deal with your friend. So I like that what Leah did in this most recent issue was have Siren explicitly say, like, you know, I did this to myself so that you could be strong again. I have to think, my, this is just my prediction, but I assume that what's going to happen here is that whatever the Morrigan did to Lorna is going to be undone, and then Leah will have Lorna actually grapple with her mental illness in a way that is intelligent. Yeah based on what we read in the Ten of Swords issue, which was about grappling with those mental health concerns, with depression, with anxiety, with survivor's guilt, which since Genosha has been Polaris's primary 
guilt motivator. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're spot on there. I One thing I kind of think is that maybe the Morgan didn't do exactly what she set promised that she was Which she said she to. did, right, yeah. Because Lorna's sure been a little crazy yeah. since, right? Yeah. So it's, it didn't really Lorna fix is still very clearly dealing with these mental health issues. Yeah. And when I say crazy, I just want to say, I just want to be clear. Like, I am someone who struggles with mental illness myself. I'm obsessive compulsive. I don't have a psychotic disorder. But when I'm using the word crazy, I'm saying it with love. I'm not saying it in a way where I'm trying to be insulting to Lorna. I think Lorna is the kind of person who would call herself crazy and make jokes about it. That seems like the kind of person she is, to me at least. I am someone who refers to myself being crazy when I'm having a neurotic moment. So that's that's the context in which I'm saying it, just to be clear, because I do want this podcast to feel safe for everybody. And there are a number of people in my life who are bipolar. I take this condition very seriously. That's part of why I want this character to become not didactic but representation you know representational politics are very 101 right but it's still important it's cool to have a character out there who is coping with this disorder just like it's cool to have a celebrity say hi i have this disorder and it's impacted my life and here's you know how i've overcome it or whatever it's not gonna fix anything but it helps people feel seen I'm hoping that she can become that in a more nuanced way. And I think Leah is definitely the writer capable of doing that. So I'm very interested to see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. That That is exactly where I'm at with the current X-Factor run is I, I came into this X-Factor run excited about it because of the promises of representation. And so seeing those promises get played out is important to me. And I feel like Leah is the right writer to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I love most about this run is how many of these writers feel like perfectly and precisely selected to write the characters they're writing. There are a couple things I'd like more of, you know, like I would like to see more racial diversity. I would like to see... I would like to see a Jewish person in the room, given the very provocative Israel stuff that Krakoa draws on by its uh, very nature. It's possible there is somebody I'm not aware of, but I don't think there is. And I think that that would be cool. There was a whole lot of Suris on Twitter the other day about the most recent issue of Marauders, which I loved. But that's because I love Fenris. I think they are the most hateful, disgusting villains around. And I like when they show up to get their asses kicked, but I understand why Nazi characters sometimes put people on edge? I don't know. I just, I think that there there's more that could be done, but I think it's very, very cool to see so many people who understand the cultural and political responsibility of the X-Men and are putting thought into it and are all collaborating on making sure that there's thought put into it. It just feels, it feels like these characters are in safe hands to me, which is a really gratifying feeling after many years in which that did not feel like the case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, this era compared especially to the, the era that preceded it just feels so much better. Enough said. So um, before we get into the specific Polaris storylines that we like, which will be a funny kind of conversation because For every Polaris storyline you like, there's an element of it where you go, except this part, which is really, you know, so we'll uh, we'll figure it out as we go. 
But first, a Cerebro character file on Lorna Dane. Lorna has a very, very long publication history. She debuts in 1968 in the original run of the X-Men. So there's a lot to cover here. I hope you'll sit tight and enjoy it. And uh, then we will come right back for more with Corey McCreary on The Mistress of Magnetism. X-Men, X-Men. Lorna Sally Dane, best known by the codename Polaris, is one of two later additions to the original 60s team of X-Men. Created by Arnold Drake, Don Heck, and Jim Steranko, and debuting in 1968's X-Men number 49, she was quickly paired off romantically with fellow newbie Alex Summers, codenamed Havoc. In the time since the book's initial cancellation in 1970, she has struggled to find a secure and unique place in the franchise, even after she was revealed, decades after her introduction to be Magneto's long-lost daughter. Lorna first appears as an unassuming but pretty girl with brown hair. She's one of many mutants who have been summoned by the evil mutant Mesmero. And here is the thing about Lorna Dane. She absolutely cannot stop getting mind control for the next 53 years. It is her thing. Anyway, the mesmerized Lorna walks right into traffic and is rescued by Bobby Drake, the X-Man known as Iceman. The near-death experience shocks her out of her hypnotic state, and she's very confused. Bobby, who thinks she's hot, sure Bobby, brings her back to the Xavier Mansion, where the mutant detector Cerebra reacts to her presence, and a shower washes out the brown dye she uses to pass in human society, revealing her naturally emerald green hair. Apparently, having green hair is Lorna's only mutation, which is kind of a raw deal compared to the X-Men. Kidnapped by Mesmero's goons, Lorna is strapped into a machine called a Mutant Energy Stimulator, which activates her other apparently latent mutant power, control over magnetism. Mesmero informs her that she was actually adopted by the Danes, and his employer Magneto is her true father. She is christened M2, Magneto II, which, sure. Lorna's floored by the news she was adopted, and feels an instant bond with her father Magneto. She's conflicted, but ultimately sides with him against the X-Men. Scott Summers, the X-Men's field leader Cyclops, takes on a cover identity as the supervillain Eric the Red, wearing a skimpy little studded leather number, and infiltrates Magneto's organization, getting close enough to Lorna to explain to her that Magneto is evil. Bobby, meanwhile, visits the Danes, who admit that Lorna was secretly adopted, but that her biological parents, her adoptive mother's brother and sister-in-law, were killed in a plane crash. She isn't Magneto's daughter at all. Relieved to learn the truth, Lorna joins the X-Men in disrupting Magneto's plans. For a while, she hangs out in the background of the book, pursued romantically by Bobby, but not super interested in him, perhaps because she has a functional gaydar. When she's attacked by mutant-hunting sentinel robots, she meets one of their other targets, Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc, Scott's younger brother, to whom she's instantly attracted. The two end up joining the X-Men as new recruits, and Bobby is furious that she's chosen Alex over him. Luckily for Lorna, she doesn't have to deal with this whole homoerotic drama for very long, because the book was cancelled with issue 66. In the five years that followed, Lorna and Alex, like the other X-Men, turn up occasionally in other Marvel comics. After Alex accidentally injures Bobby while they're arguing over Lorna, he quits the team and disappears. Professor Xavier sends Lorna after him, but she encounters the Incredible Hulk, who mistakes her for his deceased green-haired love, Jarella. Alex intervenes to protect Lorna from the Hulk, and the two decide to return to the X-Men. They don't make it back to Westchester, though, because they're kidnapped by the conspiracy called the Secret Empire, and the X-Men don't think to look for them for a while. They're eventually rescued in a tee-up story where the X-Men join forces with Captain America and the Falcons. 
1975, Marvel relaunched the X-Men title with Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum, in which Professor Xavier recruits a new team to rescue the 60s X-Men from the clutches of the living island Krakoa. After she's recovered alongside her teammates, Lorna proves instrumental to defeating Krakoa when she combines her magnetic powers with newcomer Storm's power over lightning, pushing herself beyond her limits to shoot Krakoa off the surface of the Earth and into outer space. She's nearly killed by the effort, but does succeed in eliminating the threat. This moment, in which two female X-Men save the day by demonstrating power far beyond that of their male peers, was suggested by young writer Chris Claremont, who would be given control over the X-Men title for the next 16 years. After Giant Size, the original X-Men besides Cyclops leave the team. While Claremont brings back Jean Grey in short order, he allows Lorna and Alex to retire in order to pursue graduate studies in geophysics. The two never felt at home with the X-Men, and they enjoy their quiet life together in New Mexico until X-Men 97, where Lorna is startled when she answers the door to discover Eric the Red. This time, the man in the costume is not Cyclops, but Davan Shikari, an agent of the alien race called the Shi'ar. Shikari mind-controls Lorna and Alex into becoming his operatives, and gives Lorna a new magenta costume and the codename Polaris. Havoc and Polaris battle the X-Men in an effort to stop Professor Xavier from meeting the rogue Shi'ar princess Lilandra, but they are defeated and restored to their senses. While recovering from that ordeal, Lorna and Alex move to Muir Island off the coast of Scotland to assist the X-Men's ally Dr. Moira McTaggart, and the characters fall into the background again for some time. In 1979's X-Men 119, when Jean Grey arrives on Muir Island after a climactic battle with Magneto, they comfort her when she reveals her belief that the other X-Men have been killed. Several issues later, in the famous Proteus arc from X-Men 125 to 128, Moira McTaggart's son Kevin, the evil mutant Proteus, an energy being of limitless reality-warping power, breaks free from his imprisonment in Moira's facility and begins hopping into host bodies which inevitably die and burn out. At one point, he attempts to possess Lorna, but she's able to use her magnetic powers to repel him. After the reunited X-Men defeat Proteus, Lorna and Alex return to New Mexico to continue their PhD studies. They return in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 145, where Professor Xavier summons them into battle alongside fellow retired X-Men Iceman and Banshee to save the current team from the supervillain Arcade, an assassin who traps his victims in a lethal amusement park called Murder World. The following year, in Uncanny X-Men 158, Lorna and Alex meet Alex's long-lost father, Christopher Summers, a.k.a. Corsair, who has spent decades leading the space pirates called the Starjammers in the Shi'ar galaxy. This probably doesn't have anything to do with their earlier brainwashing by Davan Shikari, but we'll never know, because that Eric the Red plot was never resolved in any way. In 1987's Uncanny X-Men 219, Lorna is attacked at her home in New Mexico while Alex is away visiting the X-Men. Chased through the desert by Sabretooth, Arclight, and Scalp Hunter, three of the mass-murdering supervillains known as the Marauders, Lorna vows not to die without putting up a fight. In the end, she overpowers all three evil mutants, only to reveal she has been possessed by the energy being Malice, who assumes leadership of the Marauders. In Lorna's body, Malice becomes one of the X-Men's deadliest foes, battling them even as they are afraid to harm her. Not even their new teammate Psylocke's telepathy seems able to free Lorna from Malice's control. In Uncanny X-Men 239, the start of the franchise-wide event Inferno, Malice discovers she's physically unable to leave Lorna's body. The Marauder's employer, Mr. Sinister, informs her that this was always his plan. Her energy matrix is perfectly compatible with Lorna's genetic structure, and the moment she possessed Lorna, the two became one being. Malice continues to battle the X-Men throughout Inferno, even after the other Marauders are defeated, and tortures Alex at Mr. Sinister's behest. When Sinister is apparently killed by the combined powers of Alex and his brother Scott, Malice flees the scene. 
Later that year, Lorna returns in Uncanny X-Men 249, The Dane Curse, where it's revealed that since Sinister's apparent death, Malice's influence has been slipping. Lorna manages to break through and seize control of their shared body, contacting the X-Men at their base in Australia for help. Nobody's present at the headquarters besides their newest recruit, the teenage stowaway Jubilee, who leaves a message for Alex, but by the time it's received, Lorna has been kidnapped by a group of Savage Land mutates who've been pursuing her. Are you ready for Zaladane? It's Zaladane time, baby. Who is Zaladane, one might ask, if one hasn't been listening to this podcast. Created by Jerry Conway and Barry Windsor-Smith in 1970's Astonishing Tales number 3, Zaladane is the queen and high priestess of the Sun People, a large tribe of the hidden prehistoric tropical jungle called the Savage Land in Antarctica. A powerful sorceress, Zaladane leads the worship of Garak, the petrified man, god of the Sun People, and comes into conflict with the Savage Land hero Kazar. Chris Claremont was evidently taken with the character, as eight years later, in 1978's Uncanny X-Men 115, he brings back Zaladane and Garak to menace the X-Men, who are passing through the Savage Land after their apparent death in the battle at Magneto's Antarctic base. This is back when Lorna and Alex are living on Muir Island, if you recall. Ten years after that story, in 1988's Uncanny X-Men Annual, the X-Men return to the Savage Land to discover it has become a frozen, barren wasteland. The High Evolutionary, don't worry about it, is hoping to turn this around, and introduces Alex to his laboratory assistant, a woman he calls Zala. Alex is struck by how familiar Zala seems, but he wasn't part of the X-Men back in the 70s, so he doesn't recognize her as Zaladin. Eventually, Garak sacrifices himself to revive the Savage Land to its former glory, and Zala privately rejoices as this will aid in the pursuit of her true goal, conquering the world. This all happened right before Inferno, about a year ago. You still with me? So now, in Uncanny X-Men 250, The Shattered Star, Lorna is brought before Zaladane. Alex tries to rescue her, but is captured, and can only watch as Zaladane addresses the unconscious Lorna as her long-lost sister. That's right. Zaladane is apparently actually named Zaladane, and she has been scouring the globe to find Lorna. Zala uses a strange machine to forcibly steal Lorna's magnetic powers for her own, in the process banishing malice once and for all from Lorna's body. Later, in the dungeons, Lorna, to everyone's shock, suddenly displays new powers, becoming taller and dramatically more muscular, and gaining superhuman strength and durability. With this new She-Hulk-style power set, Lorna helps the X-Men and other prisoners fight back against Zaladin's forces and escape. The X-Men are teleported away by their ally Gateway, and Lorna is left by herself. No longer able to fly, she secures passage on a freighter departing Antarctica, but her new powers have a strange side effect, and the sailors begin losing their minds around her, giving in to anger and rage and paranoia. Radioing Muir Island for help, Lorna convinces them she isn't possessed by malice, and is rescued by Moira McTaggart and her lover, the former X-Man Banshee. Moira analyzes Lorna and confirms a few things. Her magnetic powers are gone. Her new powers channel negative energy and emotion into strength. Zaladane must have been her sister in order for the power transfer to work, and malice has left the building. Lorna spends some time on Mirror Island attempting to adjust to her new powers, and discovers she doesn't just absorb negative emotion, she also induces it in people. She's then captured by Legion, Professor Xavier's son, don't worry about it, and tossed in a holding cell. In the 1991 franchise-wide event The Mirror Island Saga, it's revealed that Legion is acting under the influence of the Shadow King, an ancient possessing entity and longtime rival of his father, Professor X. The Shadow King uses Lorna's new powers as a nexus of energy to amplify negative emotions on the island, expanding his own power base. 
The story gets a little confusing here, in part due to conflict between Claremont and editorial. The Shadow King is ultimately foiled when new writer Fabian Nicieza takes over the book, and Psylocke uses her psychic knife, the focused totality of her psychic power, to disrupt Lorna's brain, banishing the Shadow King by destroying his power nexus. Somehow this also shrinks Lorna back down to her regular size and restores her original magnetic powers. It's worth noting that Zaladane had been killed recently by Magneto in a different story, which maybe had something to do with it, but this has never really been explained. Nicieza implies the new powers were somehow induced by the Shadow King, even though Lorna first developed them in the Savage Land before she encountered the Shadow King. I'd say don't worry about it, but I worry about Zaladane all the time. In any case, in the wake of the Muir Island saga, the X-Men and X-Factor teams reunite as one big X-Men family, and Chris Claremont exits the franchise entirely. The name X-Factor, along with its eponymous comic book under new writer Peter David, is taken over by Lorna and Alex, who are tapped by Human Defense Department official Dr. Valerie Cooper to head up a new team of public-facing mutant superheroes in the service of the United States government. They're joined by their old friend Jamie Madrox, the Multiple Man, former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and Avengers member Pietro Maximoff, son of Magneto, codenamed Quicksilver, former New Mutant Rain Sinclair, codenamed Wolfsbane, and Guido Caracella, codenamed Strong Guy, who is a strong guy. Don't worry about it. Lorna and Alex get back together, hoping they can repair their relationship after all the weirdness they've each went through over the last several years of publication. Rain, meanwhile, has a crush on Alex that quickly escalates into creepy stalking, and Lorna is freaked out by it until she understands Rain's behavior is being influenced by the conditioning of the Genosian mutate bonding process. Don't worry about it. Sympathetic after her own experiences with mind control, she tries to help Rain deal with her irrational impulses. In a therapy session with Dr. Leonard Sampson, Lorna at first refuses to let anyone else into her head, but eventually angrily reveals that she's developed an eating disorder from the scrutiny of being a public-facing superheroine, the eye candy of X-Factor. In an attempt to embrace her body, Lorna designs an over-the-top sexualized new superhero costume, which startles her teammates, and the government quickly asks her to tone it down. She agrees, finding a compromise look they can agree on. Peter David leaves the book not long after this, and in X-Factor 94, written by Scott Lobdell and J.M. DeMatteis, Lorna delivers a well-received speech on television after she and Alex are arrested for fighting back against anti-mutant bigots. She gives this speech in violation of the direct orders of Forge, the team's new liaison replacing Valerie Cooper, and the team's issues with the government don't stop there. In an effort to test Lorna's powers, authorities secretly hire the mutant assassin Random to kill her, forcing her to defend herself with all her might. Random, who has fallen in love with her, don't worry about it, lets her win. The government is pleased with Lorna's power display, as they hope to use her as a potential secret weapon against Magneto. Shortly after this, Lorna is shocked by the return of Malice. The energy being has been ordered by Mr. Sinister to take over Lorna once more, but doesn't want to be trapped again. Instead, she possesses Alex and tries to kill Lorna to destroy the body once and for all. Mr. Sinister intervenes, threatening to kill Alex if Lorna does not submit to becoming Malice's host again, and Lorna accepts in order to save him. Alex refuses to cooperate, however, and holds on to Malice to prevent her from entering Lorna's body. Malice ends up abandoning them both in pain, and Mr. Sinister kills her for her failure. Annoyed by the whole affair, he allows Lorna and Alex to leave without further incident. Under new writer Howard Mackey, in X-Factor 118, Alex is kidnapped by agents of the Dark Beast, an evil alternate Hank McCoy. Don't worry about it. They leave a note supposedly from Alex saying he's abandoned the team and broken up with Lorna. Lorna returns to therapy with Doc Samson, depressed over the sudden end of her relationship, but also recognizing it had become unhealthy and codependent. She turns to Random, I know, just roll with it, for comfort, but he's also working for the Dark Beast, 
and Lorna is horrified when Alex turns up as a member of the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, apparently under Dark Beast's control. She tries to reason with him, but he blasts her with the full might of his mutant powers, nearly killing her. Though she manages to deflect the absolute worst of it with her magnetic shields, Lorna goes into cardiac arrest and is hospitalized. She's already been feeling out of sorts because the government added Mystique and Sabretooth to the team, and it turns out she was right to think that was a bad idea when Sabretooth nearly kills them all. After she recovers from those injuries, she meets with Alex, who explains he was working undercover. She understandably doesn't think that justifies nearly killing her, and in the penultimate issue of the series, emphatically ends their romantic relationship. In the final issue, September 1998, 149, she's left reeling when Alex is apparently killed by a malfunctioning time machine. Do not worry about it. He's actually shunted off to another Earth, where he becomes the star of the series Mutant X, but we'll get to that in a Havoc episode. Not long after the end of X-Factor, writer and artist John Byrne launched X-Men The Hidden Years, a new retcon series telling stories from the five-year gap between the cancellation of the original X-Men title in 1970 and giant-size X-Men number one in 1975. In The Hidden Years, Lorna and Alex's time as the reserve X-Men in the 60s is further developed. When the X-Men run into trouble in the Savage Land, Xavier sends Alex and Lorna to act as backup. They meet Kazar, and Lorna panics when she realizes she doesn't have a code name. She offers up Magnetrix, which Alex makes fun of for a long time. Later in the series, she flies for the first time while she's possessed by a supervillain. I know, always with the possession. Back in the present, still grieving over Alex's apparent death, Lorna learns she's one of the Twelve, a group of mutants prophesied to stop the ancient evil apocalypse. Lorna and Magneto are meant to anchor the group by representing the Earth's two magnetic poles. The whole thing turns out to be a scheme dreamed up by Apocalypse in the first place, but in the process of figuring that out, Magneto, who's been significantly depleted in power due to other storylines, finds he can restore himself to his former strength when Lorna is working beside him. In the 2000 miniseries Magneto Dark Seduction by Fabian Nicieza, Lorna accompanies Magneto to Genosha, where he has seized power and turned the former anti-mutant apartheid state into a mutant homeland he rules with an iron fist. Though she knows Magneto is a tyrant, Lorna hopes she'll be able to rein him in as his advisor, and also enjoys the hands-on training she's getting in the use of her powers from the world's leading expert in them. When Magneto finds a way to restore himself to full power, Lorna tries to stop him, knowing it will cut her out of his inner circle, but he defeats her. She and his son Quicksilver go underground to aid a resistance in fighting back against his draconian rule. Not long afterward, in the first arc of Grant Morrison's New X-Men, the villain Cassandra Nova launches a genocide on Genosha with a new evolving breed of sentinel robots. Nearly the entire population, 16 million mutants, is killed in an instant, including, apparently, Polaris and Magneto. In 2002's New X-Men 132, the X-Men investigate reports of hauntings in the ruins of Genosha and discover Lorna wandering the wreckage, nude and psychotic. The hauntings are residual magnetic energies, a recording of the last thoughts of every citizen of Genosha as they died, created by Magneto, and Lorna has been channeling them. Calling out for her daddy, she isolates Magneto's own final words and broadcasts them above the din. With her magnetic powers, she reshapes the fallen sentinels into a monument to his legacy. The X-Men cover her nudity, and Jean embraces her, but she's clearly in a very bad way. This leads directly into the Chuck Austin run of Uncanny X-Men, in which Lorna is an absolute mess. Austin recently claimed his characterization of Lorna was something he inherited from the new X-Men plot, but I don't really buy that. She could have easily bounced back as a traumatized version of her regular self, but instead he drives her straight off a cliff. When Alex is discovered alive, but in a coma, Lorna rushes to Xavier's to be at his side. Alex is accompanied by Annie Gazakanian, a nurse who has been caring for him as a John Doe. 
As Lorna enters to visit Alex, wearing a new, extremely evil-looking purple costume, a misunderstanding compels Lorna to threaten Nurse Annie with scalpels. Xavier forces her to back down, and soon thereafter, Alex awakens. Lorna is overjoyed to see Alex again, and immediately proposes marriage, much to the surprise of the other X-Men, and Nurse Annie, who has fallen in love with Alex while caring for him during his coma. It's weird. Her son is telepathic, and he made them share dreams or something. Don't worry about it. Anyway, Alex doesn't actually accept the proposal, but Lorna just sort of assumes he does, and begins planning the wedding. In the meanwhile, she displays a much more aggressive and bloodthirsty attitude on missions with the X-Men. At her bachelorette party, she admits to her female friends, and Northstar, that she's marrying Alex for stability and good genes, not out of passion. She spends some time with a shape-shifting stripper who turns into Gambit, and then prepares for the wedding the following day, only to be jilted at the altar by Alex, who proclaims his love for Nurse Annie. Lorna absolutely loses her mind, and transforms the cutlery from the reception tables into a partial Magneto costume that she sort of shoves on over her wedding dress. She tries to kill Alex and Nurse Annie, but is stopped by the Juggernaut, who's in the middle of a redemption arc and hanging around the mansion. Xavier decides Lorna needs telepathic therapy, and asks Nurse Annie to participate. In a flashback, it's revealed that Lorna ran a DNA test after working with Magneto on Genosha, and discovered that he was, in fact, her biological father. She then read the FAA reports of the plane crash that killed her mother, and was horrified to discover the wreckage had been highly magnetized. Returning to Genosha to confront him, she learned Magneto had somehow been made aware of her discovery. The people of Genosha hailed her as his heir, a royal celebrity, and before she could make sense of this new development, the genocide began. Lorna watched in horror as the people all around her were blown apart and disintegrated by sentinels, only managing to protect herself, and listening as the sentinels declared the Genosians non-human one by one by one. In that moment, she snapped. Magneto was right. Magneto had been right all along. Nurse Annie feels sympathy for Lorna, and the women begin to develop a mutual respect, especially after Lorna helps rescue Annie's son. Around this time, Magneto reveals himself to be alive in the penultimate arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, Planet X, where he launches a genocidal attack against humans in New York City as revenge for what happened on Genosha. He kills Jean Grey and is in turn killed by Wolverine, but is still honored with a funeral on Genosha by Xavier. At the funeral, Lorna threatens to kill Xavier to force him to defend himself with violence and prove Magneto's point. Xavier refuses, willing to die for his beliefs, and Lorna is impressed. She reshapes the monument on Genosha to include Xavier's face beside her father's. Nurse Annie abruptly decides to leave the mansion with her son for his safety, and asks Lorna to look after Alex. Under new writer Peter Milligan, however, she begins flirting with her old love interest Bobby, which, lol. They start dating, which causes a lot of friction between Bobby and Alex, because Alex has realized he actually does love Lorna after all. In the Golgotha arc, where the X-Men are attacked by a telepathic alien creature, Lorna's delusional psychosis makes her the only character able to see through the deception, which, I don't know, I guess that's cool? Or yikes? Cool yikes? Alex tries to convince Lorna to leave Bobby and get back together with him, but she's understandably kind of pissed about the whole leaving her at the altar thing. They don't have much time to discuss before the 2005 company-wide event House of M, in which Lorna is transported to an alternate reality created by her half-sister Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, where their family rules the world. This leads into the Decimation, in which Wanda, driven to madness, a lot of that in the family apparently, attempts to erase mutant kind from existence. Though she doesn't fully succeed, all but around 200 mutants worldwide are depowered. Lorna is the only active-duty member of the X-Men to be depowered in the Decimation. Terrified of losing the life she's built, and in denial about her powers really being gone, she keeps it a secret and endangers herself and others in the field. 
When she breaks down and reveals what's happened to the team, she learns they already figured it out. And while they tell her she's still one of them, she decides to leave the mansion for her own safety. Alex decides to leave with her, and the two travel to Central America so Lorna can find an alien she communed with in outer space. Don't worry about it. In any case, she's kidnapped by Apocalypse, who turns her into his newest horseman of pestilence. His experimentation with celestial technology restores her magnetic powers, as well as making her a superhuman carrier of horrific diseases. Brainwashed again, Lorna helps Apocalypse in his attempts to decimate the human population in accordance with the mutant decimation. The X-Men eventually realize Pestilence is Lorna, and when she begins dying due to the diseases overloading her body, Alex fearlessly performs mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and saves her life. Liberated from Apocalypse's control and eager to find a new life for herself, she quits the X-Men, officially dumps Bobby, and strikes out on her own. This doesn't last for long, though, as the X-Men have to rescue her from anti-Apocalypse cultists trying to kill her. Xavier invites her to leave Earth and join a hand-picked team of X-Men for a mission in the Shi'ar Galaxy. Under writer Ed Brubaker, the Shi'ar Empire has devolved into civil war, and the X-Men ally themselves with Empress Lalandra, while the other side of the conflict rallies behind Lalandra's sister, Deathbird, and Deathbird's consort, Gabriel Summers, a.k.a. Vulcan, Alex and Scott's long-lost brother. Do not worry about it. Lorna and Alex finally resume their romantic relationship, and then end up stranded behind when the other X-Men are forced back to Earth. Alex's father, Corsair, is killed. He gets better compelling Lorna and Alex to become the new leaders of his crew of heroic space pirates, the Starjammers. And then, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into all this space stuff. Maybe in a Vulcan episode someday, perish the thought. But uh, Lorna negotiates peace talks between Alex and Emperor Vulcan. There's stuff with the Kree and the Inhumans. Anyway, eventually, Lander's killed, and then Vulcan is apparently killed. So Gladiator, the head of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, assumes the throne. Lorna and Alex decide to return to Earth and team up with Rachel Summers for a bit. They get possessed by a psychic on the way home because that's just kind of what Lorna and Alex do. Both Lorna and Alex are unsure about Scott's new Utopia project, especially since one of his chief lieutenants is Magneto, who, by the way, was retconned out of the Planet X situation pretty much immediately after that storyline. Lorna and her father speak candidly for the first time since her paternity test. He denies involvement in her mother's death. Wolverine suggests Alex and Lorna return to X-Factor, now a detective agency called X-Factor Investigations, to help guide that team after the apparent death of its leader, Jamie Madrox. Thus, Lorna is once again placed under the control of writer Peter David, where she remains for some time. Her new teammates help her discover what actually happened to her mother, which is, uh, that Lorna killed her. Basically, her mom, Susanna, and her legal dad, Arnold, were on a small plane when Arnold confronted Susanna about her affair with Magneto. Then he yelled at Lorna, and her mutation catalyzed and tore the plane apart. Magneto found her and had his associate mastermind somehow edit the incident out of her memories and suppress her magnetic powers. This retcon neatly fixes Lorna's first storyline in the 60s, where her mutation is latent and triggered by technology, which doesn't quite jive with the way mutation was presented in the 70s stories onward. The revelation that she killed her mother sends Lorna spiraling into another psychotic episode, and so her teammate Siren makes a deal with the Irish death goddess called the Morrigan, taking the Morrigan's place and duties in exchange for the goddess repairing Lorna's fractured psyche, which, sure. Alex decides being back on X-Factor is a regression for them and tries to convince Lorna to leave with him, but she refuses. She likes that X-Factor Investigations isn't isolationist or separatist, because she's suddenly back to the political philosophy she had in the 90s. I guess the Morrigan did that, too. Anyway, she stays with the team and Alex leaves and they break up again, but amicably this time. Then Rain gives birth to a half-Asgardian wolf god baby and triggers a war between the Hell Lords. Do not worry about it, we do not need to talk about it. 
Thinking herself the only survivor of that conflict, Lorna has a post-traumatic flashback to her survival in Genosha and gets absolutely shit-faced. Suicidal, she tries to goad police officers into shooting her and ends up getting into a fight with her half-brother Pietro. Pietro tries to let her go, but the authorities arrest her. This pivots into a very short-lived relaunch, all-new X-Factor, where a conglomerate called Serval Industries buys the rights to the name X-Factor and hires both Lorna and Pietro to be part of their corporate superhero team. Lorna tries to bond with her siblings. Wanda offers her a place in the Avengers, which she turns down because Alex is there and she doesn't want to be on a team with him at the moment. It then turns out Pietro joined the new X-Factor at the behest of Alex, who wanted him to keep an eye on Lorna, which pisses Lorna off. All this turns out to be mostly irrelevant in any case, because a retcon in the 2014 company-wide event Axis establishes that Wanda and Pietro aren't actually Magneto's children at all, so the sibling thing gets dropped completely. Now Magneto's only child, Lorna is later tapped when he needs help training time-traveling teenage versions of the original five X-Men. This is an interesting role reversal for her, since back in the 60s she was the least experienced later addition to that group. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, Lorna becomes a prominent citizen of the new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa, aiding her father Magneto in his work for the Quiet Council. Beginning in 2020, she also stars in a new volume of X-Factor by Leah Williams. In this book, she helps establish a new iteration of X-Factor Investigations, this time focused on tracking down mutant missing persons and investigating irregularities with the Krakoan resurrection protocols. Aware that she spent her life defined by others and eager to please, Lorna now rejects a leadership role on the team and instead embarks on a journey of self-discovery. X-Men, X-Men. So when you were embarking on your huge new project, what was the moment where you paused and said, oh, like Lorna's definitely my favorite? Like you said it was during the space stuff, but like where did that switch flip for you? I think it was during War of Kings proper, um, where she's just tearing through crap and just has this presence about her as she's basically on the front lines of an intergalactic war um, trying to unseat her boyfriend's brother from a seat of power. <laughs> yeah, no, no, like... Just, uh, deadly genesis, I'm just like, ah! Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just always gonna have Vulcan problems. I can't, I can't help myself. Vulcan it's sucks. For me. It's a hard one for me but, to, to, to deal with. It, it was that storyline, it was Kingbreaker and War of Kings, where she really asserted herself as a powerhouse, as I can do what needs to be done and be one of the most powerful characters in the room. I think it's goofy that she's not an Omega-level mutant. I get that in Hickman's new classification... You can only have... Well, except, I don't know. Aren't Jean and Quentin both telepath Omegas? I think Jean is telekinetic Omega. I have to double check. I think Exodus is telekinetic Omega. Hmm. For me, it's just like, I understand that she's younger than Magneto and hasn't had all the training he's had, but not to go to the 12, because, God forbid, we have to revisit the 12. The reason that Polaris is one of the 12 is that she and Magneto are the opposite magnetic poles in that ritual which i actually think the 12 is going to prove relevant to the new era because to me it seems like the first instance of the mutant magic mutant technology thing that's becoming essential to this run right 12 is also the number of the quiet council although right now it's the reign of 10 <laughs> i don't know i think that they're they're drawing on that pretty intentionally but the point is it's established very explicitly there that they're representing the two 
magnetic poles of the Earth, which would imply that she's an equal and opposite counterbalance to her father, who isn't her father yet at that point. But <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So it just seems odd to me. If Omega is about potential, then she should have the potential even if she's not in practice as strong as he is. Yeah, and looking at the Omega level list right now, you're right. Both Quentin and Jean are listed as telepathy, so... So it would imply that you can have more than one. Yeah. Which is a little confusing to me because I don't really understand how that works. I mean, the problem is that like you can't undo Quentin being an Omega because that was his whole deal. And, like, there are three reality manipulators, too. Right, like, because Jamie is an Omega-level reality warper, and so is Proteus. And despite what... And so was despite Franklin, what right. Yeah, Dan Slott I mean, says so, Franklin Richards is an Omega-level. <laughs> I am going to make no comment on that, although you got into it with him a lot. I did. <laughs> For context, if you weren't there... There are a lot of things about Franklin's demutantification that allegorically people thought sort of said unfortunate things about queer and trans people in terms of the metaphor that had been used previously for Franklin and his relationship with his parents. Corey pointed this out and there was an argument about it and someone else who I forget who it was was like, you are arguing with an Eisner award winning trans woman critic right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it it was a it was a weird couple of days and it was also the same week that the the Marvel documentary came out. Yeah, there's a lot going on that week. Point is, yes, there were three. I don't understand actually if those three are omega level, why Jim Jaspers isn't an omega level. Cuz I think Jim Jaspers' reality warp is actually more powerful than Jamie's is. If you look at the original yeah. Captain Britain stuff, that said, Jamie has fine motor control over it in a way, like, Jasper seems to just kind of be a reality cancer. I mean, that's the phrase yeah. they use. So it's possible that that's why. I'd love to know more. I hope Teeny will give us more Mad Jim in the near future. I mean, he's in the, the teaser for... Yeah, I'm sure Rain it's back, coming. So hopefully. I'm sure that we're going to get a lot more Otherworld stuff, and I'm excited for that. Oh, yeah, no, I'm... I mean, I think Excalibur, they're, they're the Otherworld crew. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited. For where that book's going, or seems to be going at any rate. So yes, uh, to to double back, yeah, I just think that Lorna and Eric should both be Omega level mutants because I think that they should represent the Earth's two magnetic poles, and I think that it's a little weird that she isn't one, at least officially. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that that gets added to her repertoire as well. And I feel like that could be part of where her journey in X Factor is going, right? Because what I do really like about that first issue, apart from the fact that she's like, hey, Krakoa, remember when we met? Because that is a very funny scene. <laughs> like, if you've read Giant Size X-Men number one, where she shoots Krakoa into space, I, she's like, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, calm down, it's fine. <laughs> I really like the scene with her and Eric, where she's basically like, do you know anything about, like, can, what would you, how would you describe me? Yeah, that scene resonated with me, because it's it's true, like, she is just defined by the people around her and not by her. And it's particularly crazy to define her as Magneto's daughter first because she was a character for 40 years before that happened. Right. Like, I mean, it's like it's raised in her first appearance. They say, oh, never mind. And then it's not until 2002 or three or whatever that it's established to be true. And in the time between those two 
things. Wanda and Pietro had been revealed as his <laughs> children, and Wanda has always been his favorite, very pointedly. So what's weird about the current status quo is he only has the one child left, and it's the one he has the least history with. Right. Like, they barely know each other. Yeah. So it creates an interesting dynamic. I mean, one thing that's really funny is, like, he's so mean to her, (laughs) which is just God. So mean. In the Ten of Swords X-Factor issue, he's just like, he has no patience for her. It's really kind of funny. Yeah. And it's very him, right? Because it's similar to how he always has dealt with Pietro. He's like, can you get it together? You're my child. You need to be representing us properly. Exactly. He has high expectations. When Wanda went full House of M, crazy, like that was the most disappointing thing. But she was supposed to be the one who like was his proper successor. But it is notable that in we don't get to see it is the thing. But they did clearly get to know each other somewhat on Genosha in the Dark Seduction era. Yeah. Because when she comes back, she learns that he declared her his heir. Exactly. Like it's... when he fakes his death. <laughs> so it's complicated. I don't know. I just I'd like to see that teased out more. I have I have a Polaris story I'd love to to do at some point if there's a, I don't know, if Marvel's Voices ever does like a Jewish issue, I have a story I'd really like to do with the two of them. The thing that is interesting to me is the way that he's now lost the children he was more invested in and he's sort of just stuck with Lorna. And sort of just stuck with Lorna is kind of Lorna's whole publication history, right? (laughs) It's like, well... The original X-Men are going back to the main team, so we still want to publish this book, X-Factor. Who could we put on it? Well, we've got Havoc and Polaris, I guess. You know, they're always kind of the also-ran characters. For a while there, it was like, well, uh, okay, we'll just send them to space, I guess. Like, there's there's never been a reliable home for those characters. Yeah, yeah. The the reliable home has been X-Factor for... A good chunk of their history, but reliable isn't the best term for X-Factor ever. <laughs> isn't the word I would use for X-Factor, right. I was thinking about the Magneto's daughter of it all recently because I did a Magneto episode and then a Rogue episode in sequence, and I've gotten really deep into Zaladane lore because I'm a big Zaladane head. Zaladane is a real 12 appearances ever type of bitch. She <laughs> is not someone who has much going on, however... I think she's fascinating. Zaladane actually was supposed to come back in a big way. And Claremont was prevented from doing it like three separate times. Initially, she wasn't supposed to be dead very long at all. She was going to come back and be now a geokinetic with like earth control powers to complement Lorna's powers. And the idea was going to be that like she messes with the tectonic plates the same way that Lorna messes with the magnetic field. After Claremont was off the book, it seems that role in the plot was given to the new character, Sienna Blaze, who has a similar power set. And then he was going to bring back Zaladane with her geokinetic powers to like mess with Lorna again in his return to Uncanny the first time. But then he got moved to Extreme 
and he wanted to do it in extreme, but Casada said you couldn't bring back dead people. <laughs> so there's that whole extreme X-Men Savage Land mini that Zaladane doesn't pop up in because I think they were they told Chris no. So it's now been 29 years of someone trying to bring Zaladane back. Let's bring Zaladane back. Here's the thing about Zaladane. It is pure Claremont insane galaxy brain shit to decide. Remember that sorceress from the Savage Land? Her name had Dane in it. Zaladane must be Zaladane, Lorna Dane's sister, and just run with it as a plot. That is hilarious. I think it's great. I love the whole storyline where she steals Lorna's powers. It's bizarre. It's weird. Lorna suddenly gets new powers that don't really make any sense and are never explained. It creates a whole thing that's really messy because at the time, Lorna's not Magneto's daughter, right? Canonically. So revealing that she has this long lost sister. Okay, sure. Except once you establish retroactively that she is Magneto's daughter, it creates an even deeper Byzantine mess in terms of figuring it out. When I was a teen fan coming up with like my own fanfics or AUs or whatever, I had this idea for an alternate brotherhood of evil mutants where it was Lorna and Zaladane instead of Wanda and Pietro. And they were like his daughters. What I thought was most interesting going back and rereading those stories for the Magneto and Rogue episodes, because Magneto kills Zaladane in that 90s story during his brief affair with Rogue, is right before he kills Zaladane, Rogue is protesting that he shouldn't and reminds him about his daughter who was killed. It's a very conspicuous moment. In fact, the speech bubble about you hate the Russians because they killed your daughter and etc. The speech bubble is right over Zaladane's screaming face. <laughs> and I love the bizarre Greek tragedy insanity, the dramatic irony, the subtext there being he's about to kill another one of his daughters who he doesn't know about. And Peter David left the door open for that because he has Magneto say in the flashbacks that retcon Lorna's origin story together, he refers to Lorna's mother as like someone with more potential than being simply the mother of my children, plural. So who knows? The tricky thing is that that woman's surname wouldn't have been Dane because the Danes were her in-laws who adopted Lorna. So if Zaladane, his name is Zaladane, then either she's a half-sister maybe or a cousin or she was also adopted by the Danes and then she struck out on her own and made everybody forget about her with Savage Land Dinosaur Magic, which is my theory that I would like to throw out there. I would love for X-Factor to go to the Savage Land and learn all about Zaladane's dinosaur magic shenanigans, and then she returns with either the, the geo powers that Claremont wanted to give her, or here's my idea that I think might be fun. What if Lorna's weird, I grow super huge negative energy absorption powers that she developed after Zaladane stole her magnetic powers, what if those were Zaladane's latent mutant powers? And they just swapped them. Oh, that's interesting. And would give us an opportunity Because Lorna's for... magnetism was latent, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it would give Zaladane a unique power to have. 
It's a little bit similar in Necra, actually, but the huge this uh, the huge <laughs> aspect where like people are angry, so now I'm huge. Is yeah, big Zaladane instead of big, big Zaladane. She's already got the huge hair to heaven. Just like make her gigantic. I don't know. I just think that character's fun, and I want her back. And I think it would be interesting because we don't know what they're going to do with Wanda and Pietro. But right now, Eric is stuck with the one child who he was like, I guess about, which is Lorna. Imagine if. Oh, you do have another child who's like, don't worry, you know, like, you have another child. And he's like, who? Who? Where is my other? And they're like, it's Zaladane. He's like, for God's sake, really? Just not someone I wanted. Because <laughs> the thing about Zaladane is she's a lot like Magneto. And she was kind of the heir to his weird kingdom in the Savage Land. So there's a parallelism with Lorna and Genosha that I think is interesting. And I would just like for Polaris to have her weird sister back. They were only weird sisters for like 10 issues. Because again, Polaris is constantly defined by the men in her life. It would be nice for her to have a relationship like that. That's like a complicated family relationship or in-depth relationship. That's with another woman. And so this is my evil sister. She's a sorceress from dinosaur country. It's fun. It's just fun. I love weird shit like that. It's why I love Margali Sardish and Amanda Sefton because Nightcrawler is fun, but then you add this weird shit and it's so much weirder. Like, I just like when the characters have these weird side family stories that are are strange and interesting. What are your favorite Polaris stories? Well, speaking of weird, often tropical regions, Savage Land bullcrap, as much as I hate the writer and artist that did it, I too have a soft spot for X-Men The Hidden Years, and especially the moments of Alex and Lorna establishing the early parts of their relationship together really made that book a lot of fun for me, and I really, really love at that point in her career she hadn't settled on the name Polaris yet. Right, because Eric the Red gives her that name. She doesn't have a code name. Exactly, and uh, during John Burns' The Hidden Years, she's trying to make Magnetrix work. I love Magnetrix. (laughs) I think it's hysterically funny, and it's something she comes up with because she panics. He's like, I'm Havoc, and they're introducing themselves, and she's like, I'm Magnetrix. And he never lets her live it down. And Alex makes fun of her for, yeah. It's so funny. He's like, well, I'm Havoc, and this is magnetrix and she's like shut up (laughs) yeah like i i I love the moments between them i think it's kind of chic i like magnetrix i don't hate magnetrix it's not as good as polaris but magnetrix is exactly like it's but talk about defining yourself in relation to him exactly well the funniest thing about her being called polaris is that now she's on a team where the leaders are polaris and north star and polaris is the north exactly so it's a little yeah confusing i imagine cypher is just like huh whenever they're talking about those two because he probably hears their code names is like the same word in his cypher brain yeah yeah no i love that stuff i think they're really fun to me that book was actually what underlined like i really like these two together yes and so that's why like i kind of want those crazy kids to work it out but i'm very happy that they're apart right now because I think they both have a lot of individual character growth they should do when they were such a set for so long and it never really worked out well for her in particular, but really for either of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I I think that they are good and I love them together, 
but right now they need to not be together. And it's nice to see moments of connection between them. We saw moments of connection during Ten of Swords. Obviously, we got the moment of connection where she drunk-dialed him. I like seeing healthy exes. Sarah Century and I talked about this in the Jean Grey episode. You know, I don't like that Scott and Jean are back together. I don't think that relationship is healthy for them. I could buy them back together if I saw more on the page that made me get it. And I'm hoping that in the new team they're crafting, we'll get more of that outside of the summer house family context that helps me understand why after everything they went through individually and together that they would be romantically together again but what sarah said and i think this is true i love the morrison run beyond measure but i do think we were a little bit cheated of seeing scott and Jean as exes which i think would have been cool as like healthy exes who have a history together who love each other but who shouldn't be together anymore and i think that right now that's sort of what alex and lorna can give us yes they similarly are from that original 60s run they were intended always as a pair they have been tied together i mean my understanding and i could be wrong is that wheezy and walt simonson pitched a havoc and polaris book in the 80s and then and then claremont decided he wanted to bring havoc into the x-men so that didn't happen but even if that had been a mini or something that would have been fun to read I think for the characters, it made sense not to do that because Havoc and Polaris never wanted to be superheroes. That was their whole thing, right? They were always trying to escape from it, which is why Alex being essentially press-ganged into the X-Men and Lorna getting possessed and turned into a villain, it made sense as like a way to bring these characters back in without defying their characterization because the last time we'd seen them, I feel like, apart from very brief cameos, it's that issue where Xavier is like, Lorna, Alex, everyone's been kidnapped by Arcade. I need you. And Lorna's like, we really hate doing that. We really don't want to be superheroes. <laughs> We're just chilling right now. And he's like, please. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I guess. And she puts on her cool purple witchy Shi'ar costume and is like, all right, fine. Yeah, just let these kids finish their degrees. Come on. Let her just go be a geologist. I was glad that Ten of Swords finally let Lorna use her geology degree by turning Rock Slide's body into a cool summoning circle. I have to assume that her rock knowledge went into yes. that somehow. Her rock knowledge would also be cool for if her sister Zaladane returns with those geokinetic powers. <laughs> it all comes back to geology with the Danes. The sister's Dane! I really, I just really want to do this. I want someone to do it. Talk about a drag character. Like, Zaladane is the most dramatic. Like, if dating Polaris is gay, no one's ever dated Zaladane. But if they did, I don't even know how gay that character would eventually turn out to be. Because Zaladane is essentially a RuPaul's Drag Race challenge. It's like, come up with a supervillainess. It's Zaladane. <laughs> I love that the 90s head sock trend, which I actually like the 90s head socks from the few 90s aesthetic elements of costumes that I do enjoy. But I love that Zaladane's like, she's so over the top that Zaladane's is like, it's like a chainmail sexy veil. It's bizarre. Jim Lee really went ham on that one. She has like big witchy epaulets. It's insane. Anyway, point is, I like the Hidden Years as well. I really like that story, the one you're talking about, we were talking about earlier, where she gives that speech. Especially because Forge, who's just joined up with like Val Cooper again as their new liaison, 
is like, don't give a speech or whatever. Like he tells her not to address the the crowd and she's like, fuck you. Do what I want. <laughs> and she gives a pretty great speech that is, like you said, literally if the M word speech was good, which is just, she's basically like, we want a world where race, sexual orientation, religion, and genetic structure are not the things that a person is valued for. But until that happens, we're going to be here doing our best and it's important and yada, yada, yada. So it's like hoping for a colorblind world where she can just be left alone to be a geologist, but understanding that that isn't the world she lives in, which is the problem in some ways with the word speech. Exactly. Yeah, the the early part of Peter David's first X-Factor run is probably my favorite Peter David. I would agree. Of anything that I've read, Marvel or DC, of his work. Oh yeah, because you're a Supergirl fan, so I bet your Peter David opinions are complicated and vast. Yeah. But beyond even what I thought about earlier as we were talking. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm a Supergirl <laughs> and a Teenage Heroes of the DC Universe fan. Fair, so yeah. I, so there's a lot of Peter David yeah. to work through when you're when you're into those characters, for sure. Yeah, I wish he would have just stopped with that first X-Factor run and not come back to the characters. I mean, I made the comparison to Claremont earlier. I think that one of the things that is true is that when a writer returns to characters they helped define, it often, by definition, starts to feel derivative. And I think that that is the problem a lot of people had when Claremont returned to the X-Men. It was Claremont coming back to the characters that he either invented or revolutionized. And it felt done. It felt like it wasn't new. And it also felt like he was trying to bring things back to where they were. Yeah. When he was in control. And I felt sort of similarly about when Lorna returned to the Peter David X Factor. It felt to me like I've read this before and I was more interested in the trajectory the character might have had spinning out of Austin and the space stuff, even if the space stuff hadn't been my favorite plot for her, it just felt like very quickly she fell back into sort of 90s X Factor mode. Exactly. Like it, it, a lot of times when characters or when creators return to the characters, they just try to ignore everything that's been done with them. That they didn't write. Yeah, that was done in yeah. the interim. And that can cause problems because then you're just abandoning sometimes years of character growth and resetting a character back to an earlier save point. Right. That's not what I want. I want my characters to move forward. Yeah, well, there are times when I think it's a good choice, like ignoring the Inhumans versus X-Men period for most characters, <laughs> which I think was smart. But apart from those moments where it's just like, all right, we're going to ignore that story, I would agree. I mean, the very worst one to me is the way Claremont writes Rachel Summers when he comes back. That doesn't even feel like early Rachel, but it feels like a regression in that way. It doesn't feel like it acknowledges anything that had happened to the characters since Claremont left Excalibur. Yeah. And it was a bummer as someone who likes that character. Like, it was just kind of like, well, okay. Whatever. You know. I'm glad that Grant Morrison has never come back. I am a huge Grant Morrison fan. 
I love the Grant Morrison run on New X-Men. It has its flaws like any run does, but I think overall it's one of the very best of all time. And I would really not want them to come back and revisit those characters. I think that they told the story they wanted to tell, and it's perfect the way it is in all its imperfection. That is my hesitation about the X-Men Legends book that they're doing now. I am hopeful that I will enjoy that book. I think that letting Nicieza finally tie up the Adam X, the extreme stuff is a really funny idea. I'm all for that. Why not? Like, let's make that even more common. I knew they would the moment we saw Summer House and there was an empty room. I was like, that's for Adam mm-hmm. X. I'm interested to see what Walton Weezy do with X Factor. But I'm apprehensive because retcon stories are tricky. And legendary writers returning to characters after decades is also tricky. So we'll have to see. If there's one legendary writer returning to characters that I can trust, I think it's probably Wheezy. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. What did you think of X-Factor Forever? X-Factor Forever was a little rough, but... That's why I'm a little apprehensive, honestly. But on the other hand, Wheezy's recent Death of Superman redux was fantastic. So she has both hits and misses with returning to old characters. Like anybody else, right? Well, hopefully, here's hoping, because I I do think that that often is a dangerous road to tread, the let's go back to where we've been. And I think X-Men Legends is probably a better way to do it than actual incontinuity going back. Well, you mean, and then the actual run, like, pausing for a flashback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because X-Men Legends is incontinuity. It is, but it's also... But it's its own yeah. book. You don't have to worry about it, probably, if you don't want exactly. to. Do you have any other favorite Lorna stories you should talk about? The only other one that I will continue to harp on is just read the current book. The current book is so good. <laughs> like, it, it is just such a good run with characters that have not been utilized to their fullest, and it is the gayest X-book in the history of X-books. That's pretty gay. That's absolutely true. Before we get into reader questions then, like, what would be sort of your dream for the character? Like, if you could sort of... Because you just wrote a whole essay about how Polaris is your favorite character, but she has no good (laughs) storylines, essentially. What do you think her role should be in the mythos of the X-Men? I think that her role is as nobility she is part of one of the royal families of mutant kind and she's not quite to a point where she can see herself in that role yet but i think building her up to that role is something that's going to be important sort of a political role yeah yeah a leader a leader for the entire mutant race somebody that can be a figurehead and an ambassador for the mutant kingdom And I want it established that she has gotten her doctorate. (laughs) Dr. Lorna Dane, PhD in geology. Let's just do it. Just have that have happened off the... Hank's got like three. Lorna can have one. Exactly. And like, she's been working towards it for almost her entire existence. Just go ahead and have that have happened off the page at some point. And that's what I want for the future of the character is... A place of nobility among the mutants. 
I think that would be really cool. I think it would also dovetail nicely with her mental health journey. Like, I think she needs to get her shit together before she could be that person. Mm -hmm. And I think that once she's feeling more actualized in knowing who she is and feeling strong in that, she'll be able to be that person. I think that would be exciting. I would love to see her eventually sitting on the council, assuming the council lasts beyond the rate of 10, which we'll have to see if it does, because it's not the best system of government, but maybe whatever system arises after it, Lorna could be a part of in a way that her father couldn't quite see and that maybe that she can. Christopher Hatfield writes, is mind control sexist? Hello, Connor and lovely guest. First of all, thanks so much for this amazing podcast. It's truly been one of the few bright spots of the last few months. Well, thank you. I've always liked the character Polaris. Yes, I am a gay man. And the main exposure I've had to the character is the original Claremont run. Looking back, it's strange how often she's controlled by an outside presence, e.g. Eric the Red, Malice, Legion the Shadow King. Claremont uses these three beats often with many characters, but with her, it's nearly constant. What do you think about the second X-Woman ever having so little agency for so long? To your knowledge, has Claremont ever talked about interrupted plans that would give her a more active role in her own story? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And an unrelated side question, if there's time. Has her weird She-Hulk-esque powers and familial connection with Zaladane ever come up again? Thanks again for the brilliant podcast. I can't wait to listen to future episodes. <laughs> Chris Cullen. So I guess Chris Cullen writes, sorry, it said Christopher Hatfield in the email line. Oh, but the email is Colin Hatfield. So clearly this is just someone with many hats to field. <laughs> to answer the last question first, no, her weird She-Hulk-esque powers and familial connection with Zaladane have never come up again. There was a moment where the Savage Land Mutates referred to Polaris as Zaladane's false sister in the 90s, but I think that was just them going like, we're not going to deal with this, move on. But that ties into, like, has Claremont ever talked about interrupted plans? Like I said earlier, Zaladane was supposed to come back and be a bigger deal villain in the 90s if Claremont had continued to write the book. But when he was fired, it seems like that just fell off. Presumably, if he planned to bring back Zaladane, he was also planning to do something with her and Polaris. The shield powers thing is truly odd. It is a secondary mutation about a decade before Morrison established that concept. It only happens after Zaladane steals her powers with the weird machine in the Savage Land. And it stops after Betsy psychic knifes her brain, which frees her from the Shadow King's influence and restores her original power set and takes the other powers away. So it's a very bizarre little wrinkle to the character. My suggestion, as I made earlier, would be to say that that's Zaladane's power and that she accidentally swapped them and that it wasn't it was a latent power, and so whenever Zaladin comes back, that's her power. I think that would be a way to fix it. It was very odd at the time, and it's never really been explained. <laughs> the mind control question, what do you think about this, Corey? I mean, I, I think it's certainly something that has defined the character. I, I don't think mind control in and of itself is a sexist trope. It, like many other tropes, often gets used that way. Mm-hmm. Polaris being mind-controlled is something that happens all too frequently and is really one of the leading factors to there not being a whole lot of great stories with her because oftentimes when we've seen her, she's not her. 
I think done right, they can be good, but often they feel like a storytelling crutch. You have ideas for how to use this character's powers, but you don't want to write this character. Right. So I would not be opposed to not seeing mind control of Polaris in the future, but also if done right, it can help to explore those mental health aspects of her because even when she is in full control of her mental state, she's not in full control of her mental state because of the mental illness that she deals with on a daily basis. Right. It's just kind of a weird parallel that works as a retcon of, you know, maybe the reason she is so easily mind-controlled and so frequently mind-controlled is that it's easier for a telepath or a mentalist to grab a foothold in her brain. There's an interesting bit with Malice, too, where the reason that Malice gets trapped in Lorna's body is that Sinister says their genetic structures are sort of compatible. There's like a weird synchronicity between them that once they merge they form a whole i much as i think that gene is more interesting if phoenix was gene i think that lorna is on some level more interesting if malice sort of was lorna in a sense and i'd be interested to explore that more michael mendez actually writes a similar thought a theory kind of he writes hi connor I love the Cerebro podcast and your infectious enthusiasm for the X-Men. It's going to become one of my favorite podcasts. My question regarding Lorna is about the time she was powered by negative emotions after Zaladane stole her magnetism. Could this power be a result of her time possessed by malice? Sinister once said that their energy signatures were so similar that there was a chance they could merge permanently. I always felt the negative emotions ability was another way of, quote unquote, bringing out the malice in people, which was what malice did to those she possessed. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Looking forward to the Lorna episode. Thanks, Michael Mendez. So I don't have thoughts on that beyond cool thought. Like there's definitely a parallel there because she does start bringing out the malice and everyone around her. That's what it does. And the Shadow King possesses her to take advantage of that ability. I mean, so I think there is something to that. Malice says several times to the X-Men, and maybe she's just fucking with them, but she says that all she did was bring out the malice that was already in Lorna's soul. So... There's something to that. Someone on Twitter suggested an absolutely galaxy brain theory that I loved, which was that maybe Malice is Lorna's mama dry. The way that Cassandra Nova is Xavier's, which would be nuts. Hmm. Because Malice is a character who's never quite been explained. Like, she's a mutant, I guess, but she doesn't really follow a lot of rules that other mutants do. She doesn't seem to have a physical body and doesn't seem to have ever really had a physical body. It's complicated. So, food for thought. I thought Malice was coming back because there was that cover of X-Factor solicited where Lorna's, like, all evil, but now it seems like that might be the Morrigan doing shenanigans to her with Siren's hypnosis. So, unclear. Mind control yet again. (laughs) Yet again! I mean, it is a problem she has, but I feel like when it happened again in this issue, like, Lorna getting hypnotized, I was like, this feels like it's intentional. Like, it's like... Lorna always gets hypnotized. Like, that's the thing, right? So I think Leah's going to do something with it. That's the that's the vibe. Exactly, and that's why I said in the right hands, a mind control story can be fine. But it needs to be the right hands. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to read it because it's sort of the same question again, but like Dan Spinelli wrote in to ask, 
because Polaris really resonates with him as a character who canonically lives with mental illness. Like, why is it that Polaris is constantly possessed or occupied by evil forces? Like, obviously, it's a big comics trope, but it seems to happen to her a lot. I think part of that is the canonical mental illness is something that Peter David did to sort of explain her characterization being so wildly erratic. Yeah. And part of the reason that her personality has been erratic over the years is because we only ever get her for these brief stretches of time when she's not possessed by something. Yeah. So the possession was sort of literalized as a mental illness because it's a way of explaining why the character has been so messy over the years. But part of why she's been messy is because she's constantly being influenced or taken over by outside forces. So it's sort of a like a meta text influencing the text thing on some level. Henry Gray writes, Hi, Connor and Corey, avid fan and listener of the pod. I came in after a few episodes were already out and caught up after wrongly assuming that being a longtime ex-head, I wouldn't get much from a character-by-character deep dive. How wrong I was. So I want to say how fantastic the podcast you and your guests are. Well, thank you so much. A Polaris fan, I have mixed feelings about her being Magneto's daughter. There's definitely something interesting in it, and given the, shall we say, MIA status of his other children, it's nice to have that classic Magneto and progeny dynamic present. Lorne has always felt like someone seeking definition, or rather never quite finding it in the relationships or team she's found herself in over the years. Do you think her acceptance of Magneto as her father is the ideal endpoint for Lorna? For a character whose characterization has swayed so much over the years, insert Connor's she's crazy soundbite, it shouldn't shock me. But assertive X-Factor Lorna never quite feels like she marries up with how she's portrayed when she's with Magneto, as writers have tended to play her as the sidekick of sorts whenever they're paired. I like that she's flawed and makes mistakes, takes L's, clearly seeks approval. And so the cape-swirling original costume-wearing Lorna, who appears at Magneto's side, does give off I-need-daddy's-approval vibes, which I guess fits. But part of me thinks she would never have accepted a role like Magneto's daughter so readily. Surely there would be more conflict in the relationship, even in the Krakoa era. I have a spotty history in terms of Lorna material, so I may have missed a vital era in which this was addressed. Anyway, thanks for producing such a great podcast. Best, Henry Gray, Edinburgh. Well, sorry, I didn't try to do an accent. I should have retroactively <laughs> done a terrible accent. What do you think about that, Corey? I think it harkens back to what I was saying earlier about how often she has been defined by the men around her. But I also think that it is a path forward for her in that she is currently looking for her own definition of herself. And she's trying to reconcile all of these different aspects of herself. The leader of X-Factor, the geologist, the ex-girlfriend of Havoc, the daughter of Magneto. And she's just trying to come up with her own identity. She has let others define her for so long that she also has trouble defining herself. So I think first she needs to define herself after she comes to terms with her own identity, she can embrace the other identities around her that make her her. Part of what needs to be appreciated about Lorna's character shift, and this is where, again, I think that Peter David getting a hold of her again was perhaps a little regressive for the character, is that Lorna finds out that Magneto is her father. Then Magneto dies before they can talk about it. Then she is completely traumatized and has a full psychotic break because she absorbs all of the magnetic imprints that Magneto left behind of the people of Genosha as they were dying and becomes like a medium channeling 16 million dead people. 
she's left for quite some time with the impression Magneto was my father. He was a flawed man, but he was ultimately right. The humans will never accept us and they want to kill us. I have the dying thoughts of 16 million people killed in a genocide in my head as part of my memories now because of him. And to honor him, I need to make sure this never happens again. It's actually, and this is again why I have thoughts, if Marvel ever wants to delve into the Jewish allegory of it all, she's sort of someone who learns about her heritage and then simultaneously experiences the Holocaust. It's a very complicated character beat. For the next three years or so of publication, Magneto is believed to be dead, and she is carrying on that legacy the best way she knows how. The Magneto that she has in her head is different from the actual Magneto, right? And by the time they actually get to interact, which is almost never, because then she goes off into space, like, they don't really get much time together. I think that for her, it's more been an idea that it has been something in practice, a relationship in practice. And I think that that's partly what X-Factor 1, the Williams X-Factor 1, is about. Is like, they don't really know each other. It was one thing for her to accept that mantle when he was dead. It's another thing to accept, this is my father, we are a family, we are the house of M, when it's just the two of them and they're both alive. The stressing her as mutant nobility thing I think that's true, but it's also complicated by the fact that there's no one else in the house at the moment, which is <laughs> odd. You know, like, it made more sense. They keep pushing the idea of the House of M, but the House of M was the four of them. Her and him and the Maximoffs. And Wanda's children. I hope that that comes back, because I think it's more interesting that way. And I think that she is more interesting within that dynamic if she's not his only child. And then we can throw in Zaladin. Just make it real fun. <laughs> Imagine Wiccan and his aunt Zaladin. That's really funny. There's so many possibilities you could do here that I think would be really fun. So yeah, I, I think that accepting her role as Magneto's daughter is important for the character, but I think that the logical end state for the character, as it were, is transcending that to become something better than her father is. And I think that she has that potential and that she just needs to get her mind right before she can do that, essentially. But I'm interested to see where it goes now that they're both on Krakoa and getting time to actually have conversations with each other, which for many years was not possible. Hank Mayer writes, As clumsy in some ways as the famous examinations by Peter David and Joe Casada is, some of the insights that David gives us into the characters hold up as wonderful character work and clever takes on superpowers. The idea to give Polaris a body dysmorphia issue was, while perhaps a cruel thing to do to a character who's already had her body possessed so many times before, also an honest way of addressing the ridiculous physiques that superheroes, and specifically female superheroes, have been drawn with for 50 years. Do you think this part of the character's history should be revisited? How does this thread influence how the character can be read in other ways? That's an interesting question. I like that issue, as I've said. It is a little heavy-handed in places, but I love heroes in therapy. I think it's always fun. As someone who has struggled with eating disorder stuff in my life, it's a part of Polaris's character that I really like and that I wish we saw more of. I will say, I like her new design, but the one thing that throws me about it is the cutout, the midriff cutout, 
it's odd to me that Lorna would want to wear that because we know that she specifically feels like her stomach looks fat. Like that is the beat from the nineties. So I have to think it'll come up, right? Like I have to think it's something that'll come back around because the last time she wore a costume that revealed skin in that way, it was because she was directly fighting back against her inferiority complex about thinking that she was fat or thinking that she wasn't as pretty as Jean and Storm and those other people. So I don't know. What do you think, Corey? Uh, I think that I feel like her eating disorder is something that she has actually grappled with. Dealt with. Yeah. A a lot better than her other mental health issues. I think it's fairly clear in this run that that's not something that is on the top of her mind anymore because not only with the new X-Factor costume with the midriff cutouts, but also with her her casual wear throughout her this Her civilian run. clothing is, yeah, is less covered up. Yeah, she's been wearing a lot of crop tops and things of that nature. So I think that at this point, that's a sign that she has kind of moved past that at the moment. Like, it's something that obviously could come back. I think it would be cool at least to address it because she is wearing more revealing clothing. And I think it would be just because last time she did that, it was about her body dysmorphia. I think it would be an interesting thing to at least bring up or have someone ask about or something. I feel like that might be if she and Alex do end up having a conversation, something they could talk about. You know what I mean? Like there's just stuff like that where it could be something that comes up. Yeah. It needs to be organic when it comes up. It, that's the problem with something like that is it needs to be a a character moment for characters that actually know and have dealt with her in the past whereas right it would have to be someone who knew her in the 90s exactly so you know? it needs to be alex or it needs to be jamie or it needs to be guido right it could be rain but they have always been weird together so let's yeah not yeah let's go let's... back to that well Forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good moment, I think, for this question. Caleb Warren writes, Hi, Cerebro. First of all, let me just say that, like many other listeners, this podcast is a big reason why I've gotten back into the X comics in a big way. Thank you for helping me reconnect with what feel like my oldest friends. My question for you is not about Lorna specifically, but she's definitely in the mix. Last week, you mentioned Sage's big need to go to therapy to unpack all of her trauma. This, of course, applies to pretty much everyone on Krakoa. So it got me thinking that it would be fun to establish that some C or D list character who's not being used has gotten their social work and or psychiatry degree off panel and can now function as the island's resident shrink. Who do you think would be good candidates for this role? Scott mentioned recently, I believe in X-Men 2, that he's logged years of therapy, though as a queer person who's often struggled connecting with non-queer therapists, how much value some of these characters would find in a non-mutant is questionable. Thanks for reading and thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. I think that's a very good point because Kitty goes to therapy back in mechanics Mm -hmm. and her therapist is a human. And I think it's useless therapy. Like it seems completely pointless. I love this idea. I actually think if Sage weren't already an X-Force, I actually think it would be a fun role for her, which would be ironic because she needs therapy so badly, but therapists are supposed to go to therapy. So maybe that would help her. She's just so emotionally intelligent and gets what's going on with other people that I think she would be good at it. But she's got other stuff going on. I like this idea. I was suggested in an earlier episode that they introduce a new character because in Hellions, clearly someone is doing the psychological profiles, like their data pages, but we don't know who it is. 
and it doesn't seem to be a character we already know. I don't know who I would cast, though. It's a fun idea. It's a fun question. I feel like Sean would be good at it. Sean could be good, yeah. Like, Emma obviously tries her hand at it occasionally, but I'm not sure that she's the one I'd recommend for most people. Yeah, and, like, I don't know that... (laughs) I don't know that I want a psychic... Being, a telepath yeah. being my therapist. Being right, exactly. a therapist. It seems like a bad um, choice. That's why, like, Sean is a telepath, but in a very specific way. Like, she can't just, like, read your thoughts, you know? So, yeah. Or can she? I'm never really quite clear on how her powers work, but, you know, whatever. It's fine. Oh, you were talking karma. I thought you were talking Banshee. <laughs> no, no. Sean Coy Man. Uh, karma. Yeah. Not Sean Cassidy. Although he, he wouldn't be a terrible choice, I guess. I think he could listen. Yeah. It's the giving you a path I just don't know if he'd give the advice, though. Yeah, no, that's why I was thinking of Sean, X-I apostrophe A-N, Sean. Yes. S-E-A-N, Sean. I think it would be fun. You could bring a completely, like, obscure-ass pull. Like, it could just be someone we haven't seen in a very, very long time. But I'm not thinking of someone off the top of my head, easily. Yeah, I'm... I am also struggling to think of an X character that... That would lend themselves. I actually suggested as a career path for Amelia Vaught, but now she's on sword. So <laughs> she's busy. Someone like that who has like a health care. Well, actually, so here's my really hot take. She's not a mutant, but you know who it should be? Annie Gazacania. <laughs> uh, nurse Annie. You bring back Annie. Her son is a minor. He goes to Krakoa and they let him bring his mom because he's a minor. And then Nurse Annie, who has in the meantime gotten a social work degree, becomes the therapist on Krakoa. That would actually be really fun because the thing about Nurse Annie is that character sucks. Like, conceptually. She's a nightmare of a character. However, the one time she's really, really great is when she just reads Bobby to Phil. And just psychoanalyzes the ever-living shit out of it. And we've seen, as that Austin run goes on, that she actually has a lot of compassion for Lorna's mental illness. So that's my pitch. Bring back Annie Gazaking, and if anyone's listening, steal this. I love it, and you should do it. <laughs> that's my that's my takeaway. And then she and Lorna can have a funny relationship. Because Lorna going to Annie for therapy would be extremely funny. Yes. That would be very funny. And Havoc needs therapy. They should all, I mean, he can't. That I think, ethically speaking, if you've had sex with the therapist, you shouldn't go. <laughs> you know, but, but we'll, we'll figure it out. I think she would be fun. I think that would be a good one. That could be a fun little anthology miniseries where, like, Annie Gazkadian has Doc Sanson-style therapy sessions with different X-Men. So, there you go. That's my answer. My other answer is anyone except for Empath. Right, yeah, no, that would be a bad choice. That would be emphatically a pretty bad choice. There's a few people you definitely don't want to put in that position. Megan. I thought of Megan, but she's really busy on Otherworld now, so I think... Right, I... she's busy, but when she gets back... Yeah, well, she, well, I just, I want her to join Excalibur full-time, so I, you know, like, I'm very much on that team. But I, when I was talking about how Sage is emotionally intelligent, I was like, not as emotionally intelligent as Megan. It did occur to me... <laughs> You know, I also think Megan might feel like the need to, and this is something I do when I'm giving advice to people, so I identify with Megan in this sense, but she might feel the need to, like, use references to television shows as examples. <laughs> and she'd be like, well, you know what happened on Corey or EastEnders last week was, uh, this happened, and I think your situation is very similar, so maybe you should, and it'd be like, Megan, I don't watch that show, I'm American. So it would be, 
<laughs> it would be complicated. Well, on Hollyoaks, here's what they did. And that's like, well, okay, but Bobby's never seen Hollyoaks, so he doesn't know what you're talking about. Husk could be good. I would never trust Husk with anything like that. <laughs> Sorry, I just wouldn't. Husk is a goddamn mess. <laughs> she just, she just is. She's a huge fucking mess. I'm sorry. There's just no way. There's simply no way. <laughs> so we have a couple questions about Lorna's fashion sense, which I think would be good to get into. Gary from Dublin writes, Hi, folks. I love Lorna, except when they keep putting her back in that drab Studio 54 costume. It makes her look old-fashioned when the idea was it was cutting-edge fashion when it was published 50 years ago. It's the same problem with Longshot going back to his original haircut without realizing the idea that the character should always look fashionable as opposed to frozen in time. That's why I love the new David Baldeon look, as it's so modern. Anywho, Dewey thinks Zaladin is Lorna's twin. I love the Peter David story where Lorna accidentally killed her birth mother as a child. It would be an easy retcon to say Zaladin just wasn't on the plane. After all, twins run in Eric's family. That's a good point. They do. Who knows? Bring her back. I'm loving all of these Zaladin questions. Zaladin Hive is growing and thriving, and uh, we will not be denied. As for the costume question, let me read uh, a couple others. There are just, there's like three that really made me laugh that are all sort of costume adjacent. Nelson Perez writes, Hi, Connor and Gus. First, I wanted to say that I love the podcast and the full and amazing gayness that has helped me feel comfortable with the sort of community as a tea in the Dominican Republic with little to no comic community, let alone gay community. It's very helpful. Thank you. That means a lot to me, Nelson. So thank you for telling me that. And I'm so happy that I can provide any kind of safe space for you. I, I really, that's important to me. My question is, why hasn't Polaris had a great costume? Her only great costume, in my opinion, is the green one with the headpiece. I mean, I like the new X-Factor one, except I don't like the coat. I like the coat, personally. I, like I've said, yeah, my, my only point of contention was the midriff cutout, which is cute. I just want her to explain why she's okay with showing off her stomach. Just speaking as a disordered eating person myself who is not into a crop top, personally. I would love to know where she's coming from. And I bet she would explain it well, because she always does. The thing about Polaris is she's very, very articulate. Whenever she gets an opportunity to deliver a speech or explain herself, or she just rarely afforded that opportunity. So that's one of the reasons I'm excited about this book. So it's just funny that Nelson thinks that the green costume with the headpiece is her one good costume when it's the one that our friend from Dublin said is old-fashioned in Studio 54, which it is, but I kind of like that throwback element to it. I don't know. I love dumb Kirby. I call them Kirby hats, like all of the weird Jack Kirby style <laughs> headpieces. I love when someone has a Kirby hat, like long after Jack Kirby's dead, they're just still rocking the Kirby hat. I am not super crazy about the Chris Botchlow magic design that has become her like design now, but I do love that she has a dumb Kirby hat that looks like horns. I think that's fantastic. I'm always pro Kirby hat. No one has a better Kirby hat than Hela and Galactus. Like, those are the best Kirby hats. But I appreciate when anybody is rocking a Kirby hat. Orlante Duncan writes, Hello, Connor and guest. Absolutely obsessed with the podcast. I'm still a relatively new X-Men reader. Working through as much of the Claremont run as I can at the moment. I was really taken with Polaris' comment to Magneto and Leah Williams' X-Factor number one when she implies, also metacritically, that he can't name one personality trait she's known for. Can you and your guest speak on any complicated or inconsistent history on the characterization of Lorna through the decades? including that awful costume in Uncanny 145 to 147. Thanks for everything you do. This podcast is an anchor for my sanity. Tonto Duncan. Well, you're welcome. We've already sort of covered that personality thing. I just wanted to read that one because it just goes to show no one can agree because that 
costume is my favorite Polaris costume. Now, <laughs> as, as Gary from Dublin points out, it's important to be fashion forward. And that Lorna costume is about as Dave Cockrum of the 70s as you can get. So I wouldn't suggest she start wearing it again. But what are your thoughts on Lorna's wardrobe? I personally like her in purple. I think that when she's in green, it's a little too much green. I disagree, but I just, green is one of my favorite colors, so. Purple and green are my favorite colors, so I'm not, like, (laughs) biased against one or the other. I just like, with the green hair and the green eyes and usually a green lip, I kind of feel like she should be, I mean, the X Factor costume is smart, the new one, because it's a different green from her hair green. Yes. But I feel like a lot of the time she's just, like, one shade of green and a little, like, color blocking might be helpful, I guess. I just like the purple. I think it's a good contrast. It is a good contrast. My only problem with purple is based on superheroic color wheel theory. Mm Mm-hmm. I I don't know how familiar you are with that. Yeah, yeah, but go on for the listeners. So, in traditional superhero comics, purple and green together are traditionally a villain color palette. That's part of why I like it for her. But go on. <laughs> you've got you've got the Joker. Yeah. You've got Lex Luthor. You've got the Riddler. All of these characters have traditionally had purple and green pa- color palette. You've got Green Goblin. It's just a standard color palette. Whereas heroes traditionally have the primary colors. So right. they have the reds and the blues and the yellows. So that's the only part of Lorna rocking purple with green that really doesn't sit well with me. Here's my pushback on that. The other green and purple character, famously, is the Incredible Hulk. The thing about the Hulk is, the Hulk is a hero, but it's a loose cannon hero that you need to be a little leery of. And I like Lorna in those colors because it does feel a little villainy. Like I said, I like when her design is a little witchy. I like the idea of Lorna walks in and she's in a chic purple outfit with flowing giant green hair. And you're just kind of like, this character looks kind of like a bad guy. The thing I really do like about the Chuck Austin X-Men is the way that it provided her with the opportunity to be the more radical, more uncompromising and more prone to violence person on the team. It was very interesting because it's a role that's very rarely given to women in these books. Emma and Betsy are a little morally shady in that way, but that's a sneakiness, which is a very feminine coded attribute in a potentially antagonistic character. There's nothing sneaky about Lorna. Lorna is like a Mack truck that just hits you and like drives right into you. There's something fun to me about the idea of her just showing up in a very evil looking costume and they'd be like, no, it's fine. I'm a good guy. Don't worry about it. So that's kind of my hot take. It's why, like, I still think that Chuck Austin era look, it was just Kiyasamiya clearly doing, like, Morgan from Darkstalkers cosplay. But she looks really good in it. I think it's a fun vibe. I understand that that's a little darker than her characterization is now. But I don't know. I think if her current X-Factor look was purple, I would be like, chef kiss. Like, that would be it (laughs) for me. I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts. I think it's hard for people to get away from her iconic look. And that's been sort of the issue. And when she hasn't been wearing it, she's usually been wearing a uniform. Like on X-Factor, she wore a uniform for years and years and years. 
Yeah, it it kind of feels like Jean's green dress in that. Sort of, except I think it's more like Psylocke's swimsuit or Rogue's Jim Lee unitard. They can't get out of those costumes because it's just the one that people know. Like, Jean only puts on that green dress when they're making a point, you know? Okay. Yeah. Like, she puts it on for the Dark Phoenix saga, she puts it on briefly in X-Men Red, and now Hickman has said there's a reason she's wearing it. Like, it's a... It's not a look that she returns to constantly over the years. They can't get Lorna out of this outfit in the same way that they can't get Psylocke out of that swimsuit. It just feels like it's so identified with the character. But I think with Polaris, it's surmountable because Polaris is just not that widely understood or regarded a character in the way that Psylocke yeah. or Rogue are. So I think that there's space to to create a new look and have it be really definitive. I do like her with a goofy headpiece. That's one of the things I love most about Baldian's is the the halo thing she's doing yeah, in the, the back. The crown that she has. I like it. I'm just confused by it of like what compelled her to do that. It's very funny. I like it as a weird <laughs> like we know she likes a fascinator. Like she likes a weird headpiece. So I but I just the thing that's funny about it to me is that no one has mentioned it or addressed it. So it took a couple issues before I even realized what it was. I thought it was just a power signature, but then you realize like, oh no, it's a thing that floats around her head, which is hilarious. But like, it's just funny yeah. to me that Docket or somebody hasn't been like, what the fuck is that, by the way? Like, why is there, <laughs> like, why is something floating behind your head? Because I can. Because I can. It's a just, dis- well, that's what I like about it is it's a casual display of power at all times. Yep. And like, there's a moment where she loses it because she loses her powers in Mojo. Yeah. In the Mojo verse. And it it's great. And it's one of the first things that she puts back up when she gets them back. Like, nope, my crown is back. Thank it's you. It's like a casual flex. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I am the mistress of magnetism. Check out this thing floating behind my head at all times. So there is kind of something fun about that. But I do miss the tiara headpiece kind of vibe of it all yes lord is um, a character i associate very strongly with either like a headpiece or a head sock from the 90s like she has always rocked some kind of head accoutrement so i like the floaty thing but i do feel a little bit like she's missing something on her face and forehead or whatever you know <laughs> and to answer the questions about favorite costumes i really love the original look like the original look is just a classic good look. The other reason they go back to it is that it's a sleek, great costume. I mean, it just is. Yeah. But it does look a little dated. And I love the current look. The current look is absolutely in my top two. And then everything that Baldeon is doing with her casual looks mm-hmm. has just been absolutely fire. Like, I have bought all the pieces of one of the looks, the one with the red plaid pants and the black crop top and the black leather jacket and the sunglasses. I own that look, and <laughs> I plan on buying the pieces of other looks so that I can mix and match every day of a convention when we eventually get conventions back. <laughs> Someday. Some sweet day. You should get, like, a very chic green wig. I do have one. Oh, okay, well, then there you go. You're way ahead of me on this. Okay, clearly, you know what you're doing. Charles Marsh writes, Hello, Connor and Corey. While not a huge, deep fan of Polaris, I can't wait for this episode to make me see all the reasons I should love her. But in reading up on her and her history, something seems to come up a number of times that is worth discussion. 
Lorna's often been at odds with people in her life for not wanting more. In the post-schism era of X-Factor, Havoc was chafing at the idea of being on a second team like X-Factor, while she was happy being there with her friends, to the point where it starts a fight that breaks them up. Again. Then, in the corporate sponsorship era of X-Factor, Wanda, in an attempt at sisterly bonding, offers Lorna an Avengers position to move on and up from the B-tier, which again Lorna turns down. And Pietro negs her that he stepped down from the Avengers to be with and watch over her, creepily under orders from Alex, which pisses her off so much that she slugs him. Even now in Krakoa, Magneto has put expectations on her now that she's the sole heir to the House of M, and she makes a conscious decision not to be named leader of X-Factor. There really needs to be a better way to tell all of these eras of X-Factor apart, even if she seems to be the emotional leader of the team. I run into fans who are upset she isn't doing more, and her father, ex, and former siblings seem to agree. I see it more as her deciding that rather than chasing the next expected brass ring, it's better to be someone where you feel fulfilled or making something new with your own hands. But I wonder if those who have a deeper love of the character see something there where she's making an active decision to not push herself further. Well, that was it. Hope you have a good morning, day, or night whenever you're recording this. Thanks, Chuck. I think this has defined the character to some extent. Like I said, she and Havoc were always trying not to be superheroes. That was sort of their thing. And then in 90s X-Factor, they're a little bit trying not to be mutants, right? Like they're working for the government. They're kind of the mutant Avengers, which is why it would be natural for Havoc to become an Avenger or for Polaris to become an Avenger. As I brought up on other episodes, particularly the Rogue episode, where we were like, why would you pick Rogue when you could pick Polaris? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't quite buy her opting out in that late David X factor. It felt to me like, she had to opt out because the obvious question is, why aren't you an Avenger now if Havoc is? And Peter David wanted to keep her at X-Factor. So they had to address it, but there was no really good yeah. in-character way to address it because it didn't really make sense to me that she wouldn't want to be an Avenger, that she wouldn't, you know, apart from her brief, I'm a radical mutant, Magneto's daughter, Chuck Austin, and immediately following era, She's always been someone who's into the idea of working with the humans, of trying to find some common ground. Once she embraced being a hero in 90s X-Factor, she was very into it. So I feel like she would want to be an Avenger. I found that odd. I also think that what you're saying about her being the emotional leader of the team is true. Uh, on the new team. I understand that she's like no north star's leader but when i'm reading that book it definitely feels like lorna is the leader of the team which i think is interesting and i don't know what it says about her that she's refusing that i don't have a problem with it but i think it's an interesting character decision Corey, what are your thoughts this goes to something that i touched on in my shelf dust article Lorna is a good representation to me of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, for those unfamiliar with the psychology here, Abraham Maslow was a psychologist in the early 20th century who developed a structure of self-actualization where to build yourself up to the point where you are a self-actualized human being, providing everything you can to your community and to your world, you need to have building blocks set in place. And it's built as a pyramid where the biggest blocks are on the bottom and they're the most important things. You know, 
on the bottom you have your things like food and shelter where if you don't have those you can't contribute you can't you can't truly be happy because you're struggling to survive lorna is somewhere around the point in the pyramid where she needs the acceptance of others and the acceptance of self mhm she doesn't want expectations that are laying on her to factor too heavily into her own identity. She needs to come to grips with those expectations on her own terms. I think that's where we're going with the current run, where she does realize that she is the better fit for a leadership position on this team, but that's not the role she wants for herself right now. And it's not the role she needs for herself right now. So... Well, she's happy to support North Star and to guide him, she doesn't want to be the one in charge. She doesn't want to be the one having to make the decisions. Feels like she doesn't want the responsibility. I can understand why some people see that as her shirking responsibility, given that she is one of the oldest X-Men, is someone who, as Magneto's daughter, is perceived as a leader in their community. There are people who want her to be more because she hasn't been allowed to be more in the 50 years since she was introduced. And I can understand that impulse, but I think there's a story here. I think that we're building towards something, you know? So I'm willing to wait and see what it is. Yeah. And and like I've said throughout this episode, I think that her growing into her own person is is the big point for her in this era. I think it's going to be a fantastic era for her, and can't wait to see where she grows to. Same. James Lafferty writes, Hey Connor and guest, love the pod. I could go on forever about how you've helped me reinvigorate my love for the X-Men, but it would take too long, so don't worry about it. I'm excited Lauren is in the spotlight this week and wanted to know if you or your guest collaborate on her superhero motivation. It seems to me like her only stories revolve around one of three things. Alex, Magneto is my dad, or I'm crazy. I would like to go further beneath the surface, and I wonder what it is that motivates Lorna to be an X-Man. Thanks again for all that you and your guests do. I really enjoy hearing so many different opinions on facets of my beloved X-Men. So I think that's sort of what we're dancing around, is this question of, like, what is it that Lorna wants? What is it that drives and motivates her? Because for a long time... It was just that she was put into these situations and couldn't quite get out of them. The stuff in the 60s, like, that just happens to her. And then she feels a responsibility to kind of help because she can. But the second that the X-Men in giant size are reinvigorated with this whole new set of people, she's like, all right, we're retiring. Bye. And she's happy to do it. For me, the closest we've gotten to a motivation for her is in two specific moments and one is in that early 90s run of x factor where it does seem like her deal is to be a thoughtful assimilationist essentially for uh, in terms of the mutant politic and then by enormous contrast the lorna immediately following the genocide of genosha who has decided compromise with humans is a stupid idea who is there to represent Magneto's perspective in his absence because he's dead or believed to be dead at that time. Those are two very different motivations. And it's part of why I think people sometimes find the character inconsistent 
is because her most high profile political moments have been espousing diametrically opposed viewpoints, which is again, why the bipolar diagnosis was something that seemed like it was an attempt to reconcile the way that she does vacillate between poles a lot in different ways. In terms of her motivation now, I think it's hard to say. And that's why the first issue of X Factor kind of has her putting a circle around this problem and saying, what do I want? Who am I? What is my personality? What is my perspective? And I think that this book, which is still in a pretty early days, is going to be in large part about exploring that. And I'm excited to see where it goes, because so far I think she's been characterized very well. Corey, what are your thoughts on this general question? So, on the general question, like, the question was, what is her motivation to be a superhero? And I don't think she has a motivation to be a superhero. As you've repeatedly said, she she has tried many times to get away from superheroing. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel that, like, that is a part of her character in that she doesn't want to be a superhero. But her motivation is that she wants to help her people. Right. And especially in this current run, she has found a place to do that in a very specific way. She is part of a team that is very important to this new world order in that the resurrection protocols hinge on their actions as well as on the five. So she has found a way to introduce this team because the team as a whole was her idea of whether or not she's leading it. But what it boils down to is her motivation is that she wants to help in any way that she can. And right now that is providing a great community asset. Yeah, even when she was in her dark Polaris kind of phase... She was trying to help because she thought that Charles Xavier was leading everyone down the wrong path. And her role was to say, Charles is wrong. Listen to me. You guys are being stupid. And Xavier actually saw the value in that. And when people were like, Lorna, don't say, he'd be like, no, no, no. It's important to have a variety of opinions here. And in some way that sort of presaged the concept of Krakoa. The idea that to actually move the mutant race forward, you have to hear people from all over the mutant ideological spectrum. Now, Krakoa takes that to occasionally illogical extremes. Like, what does Mr. Sinister think about this? But I do think that it is partially true. You need to be able to, at at the very least, it's true for the ostensible liberal or leftist project of the X-Men is for assimilationist liberal characters like Xavier to listen to the more radical characters, at least a little bit, right? But yeah, as Lorna has sort of returned to the mean somewhat, I do think that helping people is still her primary motivation. The thing that they justify her not joining the Avengers with, apart from the fact that she's like, I don't want to be on a team with Alex right now, which is fair. (laughs) is Peter David has her explain to Alex at one point that she likes what she's doing with X-Factor Investigations because she's providing a service. Mm -hmm. And it's a service that humans appreciate. It's mutants making themselves useful to people who have previously seen them as undesirable. I think that's an interesting angle. 
And what I like about the current iteration of X-Factor Investigations is that they're not useful to humans at all. It's the same concept, but she's being useful for her own people. She's not thinking anymore about like what the humans think of her. It's no longer relevant. What's relevant is what she can do to provide for Krakoa. And I think that that is in character, but a shift of the character's perspective that seems healthy to me on some level. Since she's been so concerned with outside appearances and outside perceptions of her for so long. I mean, that's why she develops an eating disorder is because she's suddenly like the hot girl on this public facing superhero team and feels the need to be this unattainably ideal, sexy celebrity. I think not caring as much about that is a good thing for the character and and speaks to some character growth that she's experienced. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree there. It's a move forward and it's a move towards, you know what? No, the people that need me are my people. Right. And not not humanity. Right. It's like, do I love humanity? Do I hate humanity? You know what? Actually, I'm pretty indifferent at the moment to humanity. Yeah. What can I do for my people? And I think that that is a strong direction to take the character. Because mm-hmm. she's spent so much time obsessed with what regular humans think of her. Before we begin to wrap up, do you have any big thoughts on Lorna Dane? that we haven't touched on yet not really um i would love her to be big again (laughs) yeah i think that she could be i mean i think that they're i think they're giving her space to be an important character again i no no i mean physically physically huge (laughs) that would it could be fun for an arc i still think we give that power to saladin that's my yeah that's fine but um there should be a big dane sister in any case, like someone should be huge because that it is just funny. It's such a bizarre, it's very Claremont to be like, now she has a completely new power, but it's another like, but it's like a body transforming weird power that like, cause he loves a transformation. If that is one of his favorite mm-hmm. beats. And he also loves like a sexy dominatrix. So a sexy dominatrix who's huge is a new beat. You know, it's interesting. Like I, She's such a hard character to talk about because I love the idea of her so much more than I love anything that's been done with her. I'm hopeful that that's beginning to change. So I'm looking forward to the future and I think the future looks bright for her. I'm really enjoying the Williams and Balleon X Factor. I really loved her role in Ten of Swords creation Mm -hmm. and then in the X Factor issue that came right after it. That was another good, like, healthy X moment. Like, her and Alex in creation just being like, well, here we are, like, being X-Men. This never quite works out well for us. Like, (laughs) how's this gonna go? You know, it's like a good, it's a fun beat. And I want more of her relationship with Eric and the rest of her family, hopefully, if that family gets returned to her. Because I think that her relationship with Pietro is interesting. And it would be nice if they could be siblings again, in particular. Yeah, I would love to see the the Maximoff twins get reintroduced as mutants again, and both her and Pedro and her and Wanda having more moments together. And her and Saladay just going to bring it home again. No, but the other thing is, one thing we haven't touched on, is she was the only X-Man who got depowered in House of M. That was a really intense moment for her, because it was like during her Dark Polaris moment to begin with, she gets her powers back because Apocalypse makes her a horseman for a hot second. I just like that it was her because 
she always was resistant to being a mutant, to being an X-Man, to all of that. And then the minute it's taken from her, she's like, no, that's who I am. This is who I am. I need my powers back. And that, to me, is interesting. I like when a character gets what they want and then realizes they actually did not want it at all. I think that similarly, this current run of X-Factor is going to be about her discerning what she actually wants. And I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. Her protesting, I am a big gun, in that most recent issue, yeah. in that beautiful splash page, is a really gratifying moment. Because she is. And I don't just mean in terms of like power feats or whatever. She is a big player in the X-Men world, but has never quite hit the Jean and Storm and Betsy and Emma and Rogue tier of like X-Women that you point to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that she could if given the opportunity so i'm excited to see what happens yeah exactly uh that i am a big gun moment was mm. that's so good of course then she gets mind controlled but listen that's just yeah, polaris's yeah. life right like she can't stop getting hypnotized well thank you so much Corey, for being my guest this has been a lot of fun why don't you tell a little bit about where they can follow you online and any work you'd like to pull up all right. Uh, you can follow me online uh, by going to Twitter and finding me at CoreyMarie21. I am always on Twitter. Uh, probably shouldn't be. <laughs> None of us should be, really, but we are. For writing purposes, you can find me at Women Write About Comics, where I am an editor and contributor. You can find me at ComicsXF, where I write about a multitude of things, but for the purposes of this, I am one of the X-Factor writers. You can find me at the Comics Beat, where I do part of their DC Beat. And most recently, and most excitingly, you can find me at Comfort Food Comics, where I am doing a at least 100-piece retrospective on 1990s Superman, arc by arc, or issue by issue as it demands. Well, what do you get for the man who has everything? <laughs> you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes and transcripts of the episodes. There are still only two, I'm aware, but there are more coming soon at CerebroCast.com, which is the official landing page for the podcast. You can also find a link there to our Discord server, which is a fun time so far, very laid back and chill. You can email Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at CerebroCast.gmail.com. Our next episode, this is a weird one, will be about Mortimer Toynbee, the classic X-Men villain Toad. Mm. My guest will be comedian Tim Platt, who is a delight. And if you have questions for me or Tim about the Toad, send us an email. I have to go reread Wolverine and the X-Men now. So uh, (laughs) I'm going to go do that. Thank you for joining me as ever. And until next time, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is to 